Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Talent Tank. This is the second episode and return after King of the Hammers. This will be episode 19. We have Eric Miller sitting in with us this morning. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good, Wyatt. How about yourself? Well, actually, it's like afternoon your time. That's where we're at it the is. split, like Midwest yeah. time versus Central versus Eastern. And you're all the way up in, in Maryland. Tell me about how does a guy from Maryland end up racing all the way out in the on the West Coast in the desert? That's funny. You say we're all the way up in Maryland. I went to school up in Pennsylvania, and they thought we were Southerners. They said all the way down down far and that far in Maryland, you know? So I've been called everything because we're right near the Mason-Dixon line. How does a guy like me start racing out West? Man, that's a great question. I think it all revolves around the, the current series I'm running now, Ultra 4. Kind of pulled me out there, and it uh, it all stems from that 2009 RCQ. That's really where it all kind of came from. And that's kind of what Will Gentile said. He When we had him on, he said a lot of his life and trajectory, that was the inflection point for him was RCQ coming to Roush Creek. Yeah, I, I listened to Will's, and it was funny because it was uh, kind of a trip down memory lane, and, and you forget all that stuff because, I mean, it was over 10 years ago at this point, which uh, it seems like a lifetime, but it seems like yesterday at the same time. So, yeah, it was really for a lot of us here on the East, the RCQ, because there was no real, um, I don't know, it was a West Coast thing. It was kind of something we knew of and, and watched, you know, through Pirate, but it wasn't a reality, and it was still so small that, uh, heck, I didn't even really – think I'd ever have a chance to do it, but that RCQ kind of popped up out of nowhere and, you know, 10 of us got the chance. We're, we're going to dig into that inflection point for you because that changed your life and trajectory for exactly the last 10 years. But man, what about the times that we're in right now? COVID-19, is it impacting you guys yet? It's crazy. I mean, without social media, I would say no, but I mean, we're, so, we're all so immersed in that these days. It's uh, really our way to stay connected. I mean, it's the reason things like this are, uh, are so popular and, you know, we can keep this network, especially in the industry connected. Um, I live where I live for a reason. I was lucky to be born here in Western Maryland. It's a smaller town. Cumberland's like, you know, I don't, I haven't looked in years, but it used to be about 25,000 people. It's probably down to 20 now. Um, but we have, you know, everything you need, but at the same time, like where I live and where my shop is, I don't really have to see anybody if I don't want to. Um, and that's kind of nice. We have good neighbors, good people. But at the same time, like this COVID-19, it almost seems uh, from our standpoint, like it's not a reality yet because it hasn't hit. West Virginia was the last state to get a confirmed case. And uh, I think that was just yesterday, the day before. And then us up here in Western Maryland, I don't know if we have a confirmed case yet. So we're the outlier from the larger urban areas of Baltimore and DC. And they're only two hours. But at the same time, you ask, you know, any anybody down there and every other person doesn't know where Cumberland, Maryland is. So we're a tourist town. We're in the mountains. So it's almost this western part of the state region. It's almost like another state to those people down there. Everything kind of ends at Hagerstown or Frederick for them. I got you. Yeah, you guys are you know, very secluded out there. Not as not as secluded and desolate as, say, Blyler, where he's at in Pennsylvania. But you're you're close. Josh is in the middle of nowhere. When I first went to his shop, I just said, how is this here? You know, it's, it's worse, <laughs> worse than me. Cause he has such a big operation. Mine's mine's small, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I had to laugh about that, but 
it's the same kind of story for sure. Uh, I gave him a hard time. Like, do you employ all of the county? Like, does every working body in that county work for you? And it's kind of kind of yes and no. It's kind of, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of uh, work opportunities in those valleys. Like if you look at the topography of Pennsylvania, it tells a story. And I'm, that's kind of the stuff I'm interested in too, right? Because it all revolves around, you know, seeing new things and, and racing, you know, places like that. Where I live, I live literally a stone's throw from the Pennsylvania line in Maryland. So I'm, I can almost see West Virginia and I can see Pennsylvania right now out my window. And that's funny because the way the, the Appalachian Mountains are on, they run in this this curve up toward like New York through Pennsylvania. And literally that's how all the routes run. And Josh is like right up the road. I mean, he's not that far, but to get there because of the topography is like three hours. And so it's the same kind of thing in those valleys. Like those guys have to drive a, a good ways to either get down to Harrisburg or up to like, you know, Danville, Sunbury area to work. So most of them are find employment right there as close as they can to home. And Big B's a uh, major employer in that area. So I saw yesterday, which everyone's going to, you know, they're going to listen to this, you know, in a week or so. So for everyone listening to this, a week ago, we saw Jesse Haynes came out and he believes that he is COVID-19 positive. They didn't have testing kits for him, but man, for me that he's really the first case of somebody that I know and could put my finger on and the guy's numbers in my phone and I can text him and be like, dude, are you okay? Yeah, I saw that too. Again, social media. I mean, Jesse and I were, we're not super close, but we're good friends. You know, I've known him heck as long as I've been doing this since I was a kid going out to uh, like the new rock events in the Badlands at, at uh, in Attica. And uh, yeah, so Jesse is the first one that I personally know as well. But it's not the, I would say, the closest to me. Actually, one of my teammates, Scott Decker, he works down in uh, Northern Virginia. So that, again, D.C. area. Last week, he found out that someone in his office who sits, you know, a desk away from him was a confirmed case. So it's real. It's no joke. You know, I think all these precautionary measures that, heck, the the feds are taking and, you know, our local legislature's taking are important and they're serious. But again, it's really hard to look at this whole thing and not be super naive about it and, and realize that this uh, <laughs> could be a little bigger than, than all of us. Well, yeah, I know when Dave and JT and Ryan Thomas came out, I, it feels like a year ago when this happened, but I know it was 10 days ago. So from the time everyone listens, it'll be like, you know, 17 days ago or something when they canceled the stampede race and how much heat they took right off the bat. And it was like, wow, from my standpoint, I was like, dude, I think that's the smartest thing they've done in a long time. And then the very next day, the state comes out and says they're killing anything that had, you know, gatherings of over 250 people. And now we're at a situation just every day is evolving that it's down to groups of 10 or 10 or more. No, don't do it. And even if you're in under 10, stay at least six feet apart. It's just insane the times that we're living in. It feels, I don't know, man, if it feels like 9-11, but in slow motion, like, that's a great way to put it. And uh, to touch back on the, the first ultra four race cancellation, being from the East, right? I wasn't, it wasn't on my calendar to go out to. I mean, we, we ran the whole West Coast championship in, uh, in 2016. So I've done it all. I know what, what goes into racing, you know, from Maryland in California and not only KOH and, and Reno, but the entire series. I have to respect them and applaud them because from a guy like me standpoint, yeah, at first you're like, wow, they really canceled that race proactively before anything kind of shakes out. And then, you know, I kind of had a conversation with Leah about it and she's like, yeah, think about, you know, if we were traveling out there right now and getting ready for that race, the impact that it could have if they waited and waited and waited and the state shut them down 
what, a day or two before the race? Heck, we'd be in Kansas by then. You know, it could really turn people's lives upside down more so than it already has. So I think that that was the right call. I know a lot of people in the sport and the industry were kind of, uh, you know, upset about it because, you know, let's be honest, a lot of us are uh, skeptics about this kind of stuff and, you know, Big Brother being an issue and the government having too much reach and power. But at the same time, hopefully we've done enough soon enough. And uh, I got to give Ultra 4 credit for kind of taking it on the chin with that one. It was the right call. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how the rest of the season shakes out because one of the biggest things that I saw come out of that was the people already crying and complaining that it was going to be unfair for the guys racing the East. They had uh, an extra race on top of it. And it's like, Guys, it's like the day after the cancellation, I doubt we're going to be in Kentucky. I mean, I can tell you right now we're not going to be in Kentucky. Ultra 4 hasn't called it. But if you look at what the CDC recommends, they're talking May before anything happens. So I think they're waiting it out. We still have some time, but there's just no way. And that would even it back up, right? Two races and two races. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, it would certainly, if they didn't cancel Kentucky and they went ahead with what Dave has stated, that it would be a double points race for West coast guys at nationals that changes that race. I mean that you would be incentivized as a West coast racer to take position in a different, and you're just running a different race than the East coast guys. When you're all on the same track together, that lends itself to so many negative things potentially happening, pitting racer against racer. I agree. Reno, Reno is not the place to do that. That race is its own animal, its own beast. When I saw that, I just kind of shook my head like that's not the fix for this. Dropping one of the East Coast races or, you know, potentially canceling it is is the right move. But then again, I have to look forward further into the season and see that, you know, our national point series, we're going international to Mexico, which how much sense does that make running an international race in a national series? That one I don't understand, but we're not going to Mexico. There's no way there's going to be international travel with what's going on. I mean, I think anyone that can read the news and see the events going on. Uh, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. And I doubt we'll be in Mexico. So who knows what's going to happen with the 2020 season uh, to begin with. We just have to be hopeful, right? We just have to have hope and faith and, and that it'll work itself out some way and it doesn't impact all the people we know so well. But we'll put that behind us for now because we want to talk about Eric Miller. Let's go into that. I, I just didn't want to be tone deaf during this time and only you know talk about racing and ultra four and what we have going and where we've come from. And I know in this time people are looking for normalcy and to listen to this. I mean, I was on the fence, like I was going to can this thing. Like I was going to shelve it during this COVID outbreak because I felt it was tone deaf, but so many people talked, I reached out, you know, sounding board. It's, it's really important, you know, to bounce things off of friends and, and acquaintances. And they gave me back the inverse feedback the inverse feedback was dude you have to keep it going it gives us all some this bright shining light to look forward to last week being when one guy said dude there was only two nuggets of the week that i enjoyed and it was the last two koh sessions that you had up and those were my nuggets the rest of the week sucked and i'm like okay maybe i do have a i guess i, I wouldn't have thought of it as a responsibility but maybe it's i guess developed into it we've all come to expect and so for the next you know hour and a half or two hours we're gonna sit down and with you eric and you're gonna take our minds off of all the bs in the world i hope i can and and i think it's funny you mentioned as a responsibility i think that it is at this point you know you started this snowball that's a town tank downhill and uh I think it's a it's morphed into this awesome thing that really helps connect all of us even better because 
yeah, we're all friends and acquaintances, but you really don't know the the backstories of people and, and you don't get that, uh, that really intimate time with them. This is a good way to really tell everybody's story. So I personally, as a, as a follower have been very eagerly listening to these. They're very cool. Intimate information. I think that's the the, the thing. Like it's hard to, it's, it's hard to grab, grab you and sit down with you for two hours or even just somebody grab you for 10 minutes and get out a whole bunch. Like I've, I've known you for many years and, or known of you for many years, I think would be the right way. And I asked you when I talked to you at King of the Hammers and we talked about doing the show, I asked you about, uh, were you at XRRA, Indiana, Badlands in 2008? And you said, yes, I absolutely was. Because in my head, I remembered you being there. I remembered talking to you. It was the very first time we met. You had this mustardish colored or goldish colored like TJ or YJ. I don't remember all the details, but then I never yep. saw you again. And then here we are 12 years later. And I was like, man, I swear that was you, but I couldn't find it. Like Nolan Grogan was one of the guys, the photogs there and Ricky Berry, one of the photogs there. I was going through all their pictures. I never found a picture of your Jeep. And I was like, ah, man, I, I, I must be crazy, but you've been around yeah. forever. Yeah. And it's funny how this like all started. And those memories to me are just like, they're, they're foggy too, like that, because it was so surreal at the time. I mean, literally I was a, I was a kid out trying to take a stock mod Jeep and, and kind of race it. And that kind of all happened by chance too, because, uh, XRA came East for the first time to Paragon Adventure Park. And it was shoot back in 2006. I think I talked to JT about this because he was one of the five people that was actually, uh, invited for that, that first race. It was like four guys. It was Nelsoner, JT, Mark Munson, and, uh, Lou Levy was there. Oh, wow. He's a Maryland guy too. And Charlie, you know, he's up in New York's, but they were big rock crawlers at the time. And, uh, Lou was in the pro mod class and Charlie was in the unlimited class and had one of the nicest moon buggies around for sure. And it was funny because Mark and JT came from out West and you had those two guys from the East and Kyle Nosp who owned Paragon. He was a good friend of mine. I mean, again, I was like a freshman in college and Kyle had come to know me because I started going to Paragon before, uh, pretty much right after I got my license, but you couldn't, I guess, uh, by the rules legally drive there until you were 18, you had to have a parent with, or, you know, have a waiver sign. So from that first time that I ever went, I always said I was 18. <laughs> so, so in my 18th cause I was like three hours away from the park and, you know, my dad was busy. He had my sister, you know, too at home and it was, you know, I, I kind of was on my own doing it and I loved it. I kept going up there to, to four wheel on these group rides. So I said I was 18 and the time that my 18th birthday came around and I started, uh, you know, this, this rock race and stuff, he put two and two together. He said, wait a second. I thought you were 20, you know? And I said, ah, you know, you caught me. <laughs> so we've kind of always joked about that, but, uh, yeah, he invited me to come down. He goes, dude, you're 40 minutes up the road. I was at school up in Scranton. He says, come down, bring your Jeep, check it out. It'd be nice to have, you know, another entrant. And it was the first XRA race on the East coast. And I was hooked. I was like, wait, you're telling me that I have to get from point A to point B as fast as I can. And there's no cones in my way. I can just pick whatever line I want. And they're like, yep, that's it. And, uh, it was two by two racing. And, uh, I had such an awesome weekend. I was semi-competitive for what I was driving. It was a, a TJ on 35s, right. Against, you know, full tube V8 rock crawler race buggies. And, uh, I had a, a computer short out and, and kind of keep me off the podium there. I forget if I was fourth or fifth, but anyway, it was the first weekend where I was like, wow, this racing thing is, is a ton of fun. And I think definitely my cup of tea over competitive rock crawling, which I loved, but this was definitely the avenue I enjoyed. Well, let's talk about 
and I know there are people out there, but it's a, I know that we're, I'm going to pander to the, the minority here. Who's Eric Miller? Why is he on? Why, why am I carrying him? And I believe your first race at King of the Hammers was 2010. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And since 2010, all the way through 2020, you've never DNF'd in 4,400. Zero. You finished every single one of those races. That's 11. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's been 11 years now. Crazy. In the last six, your worst finish is fourth place in the last six. That's a little bit crazy, man. Yeah, I'm so proud of that too. And it's it's one of those things until you put it on paper and really think about it. Like I know I'm consistent and I know we're always uh, in contention when we go to King of the Hammers. You know, we've we've built a reputation around our, our team, our platform, um, that we're always front runners. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. But yeah, like you said, until you put it on paper and brought it up to me, I was like, wow, I don't really reflect on that. You know, it's not something that I, uh, I think about, oh yeah, you know, I'm a consistent finisher at King of the Hammers. I know that deep down, but man, that makes it real. Um, and to know each one of those years, exactly what took me out of uh, contention for the win. It was, it was something stupid every time. Right. And that's King of the Hammers. And that's why we all say it's, it's a crapshoot because it was, I can tell one issue that was the difference between first and second or first and third, first and fourth. And that's, that's how it goes. So in those 11 years, there's only two of those instances, only two years, did you not finish in the top five, which that's yeah. insane to me. And they, they're not that bad. 14th and 25th, most people would kill for a 14th and a 25th absolutely kill for those spots. And so the rest of your, your fifth or better, you're a two-time King and you've been within spitting distance of being number one for another three times there. So dude, you're, I, I know I called Blyler, you know, last week I called Blyler like the best driver in ultra four today, like at this moment, because of what he's done for the last four years, but you are, you are the, the best driver has proven, over over 11 years probably the most accomplished driver in ultra four you might not be a three-peat king but you have if we were to assign point values to this versus all the other guys you're way up there and i think uh man i mean it sounds like i'm blowing your head up but i'm not i'm really i'm talking like facts when i really sat down and started putting your numbers together preparing to talk to you today god man impressive and the stories and the teams that you put together each of those years and championed to get to that level, you have your, you have your junk together, man. Thanks, Wyatt. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it goes back to, uh, again, the people you surround yourself with and, and the equipment and just, the, just your mindset. I mean, I know from, man, my, my entire life, you know, I've always just tried to, you know, do the best I can at any given, any given point in my life, be it academics or athletics or competition you know we were never really put down for losing when we you know played sports as kids and never really got in trouble for not getting good grades but we always had good grades and it was because my dad would say well what happened you know why didn't why didn't you get an A on that did you not study hard enough what was it and he would always make us reflect on what we could have done better and improve on that the next time because you know, if, did you give it a hundred percent? Was that the best job you could do? And that sense of uh, what, like leaving something on the table, it always kind of burned me. And that's, I think why we've had success year after year at King of the Hammers, because we take the races and go back and dissect them and said, what did we do wrong? And we've done this for 11 years. What can we improve next year? And every year we progressively get better and better and better as a team. And the same people keep coming back because of that, I think they respect the fact that we don't just go out there and kind of wing it. It's a calculated effort. Like you said, the results speak for themselves. I'm very proud of that. 
I've used the term like you're a student of the game to describe you, and I still stand by that. You, uh, you're studious, and you, you know what's up and what works and what doesn't, and have continued to to change it. And now you have a huge data point to go off of. That I mean, a huge data pool to go off of based on how many years you've been doing it. But now you, uh, you field multiple cars. You know, Miller Motorsports is you but you have a lot of people in your pro chassis. So coming off of KOH 2020, which we are going to way get into way down the future on this, uh, in this interview, but right here, right now you ended up third, but Josh Byler ends up the King and he's running a Miller pro chassis. How did that make you feel? I saw on your outline that you said, how bittersweet was that? I looked at that word and I laughed and I thought it couldn't be, it couldn't be further from bittersweet. I am I am so proud and so happy for him. It's a hundred percent. I just, like I said, it's like watching a prodigy in front of you, you know, get this. Cause I knew way back when I first met Josh, I noticed that he had the same, he were very like-minded. He had the same outlook on racing. He had, you know, resources at his fingertips and he had, a, and he had drive and will to do this. And he had never driven over a rock in his life, uh, you know, with, the intention of either having fun or doing it competitively until he met me. And, uh, that was his biggest hangup. He's like, I don't know if I can get this rock crawling thing down. I'm like, Josh, the rock crawling part, something you'll grow to love. And that's, I think another reason why I've had really good success at King of the Hammers is the rock crawling background. So for me, uh, to kind of see him get that title and bring it back East and to do it in one of our cars, it's like I said, I couldn't be more proud when I crossed that line. I think it was, better than me winning. I mean, let's be honest. Josh is the first King, I think in the last seven years, that's like new blood, right? It's been the same group of us or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, that's says something in itself, right? That's a testament to um, the race and the the people, the people that are, are having success at it, but it gets boring, right? The same guys. Oh, Eric won again. Oh, Jason won again. It's like, it kind of takes away the, the notion of what King of the Hammers was that it was uh, something that anyone could attain or accomplish. Um, it kind of puts it out of reach. And for Josh to come in being a guy from Pennsylvania that had kind of built a race team again, you know, he was a woods racer and whatnot, but to do something on the national scene like this really reinstills that it, it is still anyone's game. Anyone can come in if they have uh, the right backing and, and talent and drive and put together a program and still win this race. It's not NASCAR yet. It's not going to be NASCAR. That's what's special about it. You know, Josh proves that. And I'm, like I said, so proud of him to be a part of it and uh, be his teammate and to like kind of mentor him and you know, every year we go out to Johnson Valley, we spend a week together and that's one of the most fun weeks of the year for us. It's a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. We're not just sitting around a campfire drinking beer. We're out there putting miles on these cars, working on shocks, uh, you know, making changes, seeing what we need to do to improve. I mean, it's a proven platform, but it doesn't mean we don't tweak. I mean, if you're not making changes and getting better year after year, you're, you're sitting still and getting past. And this year was telltale of that because we did make a lot of changes and here he is on top. And it was a fan relay for me. Like I said, Every year I can look back and pinpoint one thing, why I wasn't on top. And it was a, it was a fan relay this year, unfortunately. Well, I look forward to hearing your feedback once you listen to Josh's episode, which will have aired by this point. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. We're going to jump back into Eric and who you are, where you're from, Cumberland, Maryland, growing up. But right as we're about to talk about that, I know you have something 
going with uh, a surprise birthday present for your grandfather. We kind of talked about this in prelims. You know, you're a Jeep guy living around a bunch of Toyota folks. So what's going on with this? <laughs> what's going on with this uh, this Jeep for your grandfather? He's he's about to turn 90. Yep, he's uh, his 90th birthday is in April. And that Jeep and his home place, his farm, really has been integral in getting me to where I'm at today. When I look back and say, why did I take this path in life? And, and how did I, how did this, uh, this sport and, and this hobby uh, captivate me so much? Where did it start? My dad always asked me that question. He's like, was it the, you know, monster trucks we took you to, to see when you were a year old and, or, you know, what, what was it? And I say, yeah, that was part of it. You know, seeing that kind of stuff as a kid, uh, I had a subscription to four wheeler magazine, you know, before I could even read, I, I remember just looking at pictures of Jeeps and trucks and that, and I was just always kind of gravitated toward that stuff like tires and tread. And, and I, I really believe it's from that, 1957 CJ5. It was a Willys that my pat bought back in, I think the sixties. It was just a, a farm Jeep and that farm in West Virginia in Maysville. It's like as remote as it gets. I mean, it's, it's up in the mountains. Um, it's his family homestead place. So my, I guess it would be my great grandfather moved there. They were farmers. Uh, he had a job, but they had a, a fully functional farm and he raised 15 children there which is amazing. And they went to a one room schoolhouse that was literally on that mountain before they moved on to high school. I mean, to hear my grandfather tell these stories and know that it was only, I say only, but not even a, a lifetime ago. I mean, it was really in the thirties and forties and how much has changed. It's surreal. It's one of the reasons I live where I do. So I try to, um, it's funny, we're sitting down and doing this interview. I really should do something like this with him because I've heard all these stories, but Nixon, my son, is not going to get them firsthand from my grandfather. So to sit at the kitchen table in that farmhouse to look at the old house where his mom and dad raised 15 children over the course of like 17 years on that farm, man, the history is just, uh, it kind of is overwhelming. And it, it really makes you feel small knowing that what they had to do just to just to live. I mean, they didn't even have electricity when my grandfather was born up there. So that was a big, I guess, uh, part of me as a child and shaping who I am to see really the most basic form of, uh, of survival, living off the land, off your own means. And look at the times we're in today. I mean, heck, it could come back to that. So that Jeep to me means a lot. And when I was 15 years old, I remember very vividly, I said, hey, Pap, let me take the Jeep for a ride. And mind you, this was the vehicle I learned to drive stick on. So, I mean, as far as like sentiment and history, it doesn't get any better than that. I was like, you know, seven or eight years old. And I remember just learning how to drive stick in that thing. My mom used to take me all over the farm and that we'd get together as a family and go up and explore the mountain in it. And I just remember the, I guess it, it kind of captivated me and it was like, wow, this is so cool. Like what you can actually do in a Jeep. So it kind of molded me into be a Jeep guy. You know, I got to the point where I was old enough to drive it on my own. And I, it was always what I wanted to do. Pat, let me take the Jeep out. And so he finally started to let me. He was pretty strict as I was growing up. But he let me. He said, just, you know, it's it's getting old. It's getting tired. Take care of it. Don't run the heck out of that thing. You know, I'm 15 years old. He knows how I am. So I drove it down the mountain. He says, please, just be careful with it. And I remember getting three miles down the mountain, turning around and just to the wood, back up that dirt road as fast as that thing would go. And halfway through second gear, I just remember that thing saying, Today's the day. And uh, I believe it, it threw a rod through the block. And I was sitting there on that dirt road, looked under that Jeep and saw a big puddle of 
black oil and thought, oh, he's going to kill me. So that was probably the longest three-mile hike of my life, just knowing that what stood in front of me, what I was going to have to face, because like I said, he was really strict with me growing up, but he kind of just shook his head and bailed me out again. We pulled it home and up the mountain. And he said, you know, he goes, so what are you going to do, Pap, after I got, you know, my, you know, (laughs) going over, getting in trouble? He said, well, he goes, you can have this thing. You know, it's, it's, it's to the point that it's either ready for scrap or whatever. He goes, just do me a favor. Please don't modify it. If you do anything with it, you know, he goes, just, you have your other ones to modify. And, you know, I was talking about, uh, I had a grand Cherokee at that point that was going to be mine, right? That was the vehicle I was learning to drive on with a learner's permit. He said, just mess with your other vehicles, get another Jeep, leave this one alone. And I made him that promise when I was 15 and I took it home to uh, my dad's house, really, which is in just a normal community, right? We don't really have a big garage or anything and started to tear that thing apart there. And that's where my dad said, stop. (laughs) This place is going to look like West Virginia before you know it. You're going to have parts blown all over the driveway. Just take it down to the farm. My dad had uh, some acreage south of town that he bought literally for the reason to have a place to go, to grow a garden. Uh, He had a pond down there, you know, just a homestead place, you know, outside the city or the little town. And, uh, that's where I started to restore this Jeep at 15. Well, what I thought I was doing was restoring it, but I pretty much took it apart at 15. Here we are, I'm 33 years old. And, uh, I made a promise to myself that it will be done this year for him and his birthday being next month. I'm going to bring him over and, and show him that thing as a full roller. I'm waiting on the motor to come back, but it's very, very close. And I've pushed the last two years really hard to to make the time to get that thing done for him so that's where we're at oh that's wickedly cool well when you get to that point please post that up on social so we can see that and share that because i do want to see that i want to see his face i want to see how how happy he is and you know there's just no recreating that when just like you looking at blyler uh, you know blyler on the box and feeling like that's your prodigy did this you know what he's done i can just i can see already your grandfather looking at you and being like hey did good I, I just, I, I know it has to be done this year because I, I, I don't want to miss out on that moment. I mean, this, this whole situation we're dealing with now just proves to you that, you know, the, the next day is, uh, is never known. And, and man, it would, it would really tear me up to not be able to give him that as a, just as, you know, saying I, I was a man of my word, because I'll tell you right now why he doesn't think that thing will ever be put back together. As far as he's concerned, it's still in a million pieces and he'd be damned if I could even find them, let alone put them back together. So, uh, he doesn't know that any of this is going on. Like I said, I'm going to kind of reveal it to him and it'll kind of be like a, a soft reveal, if you may, because it's a, a fully bodied roller without a motor in it. And uh, I'm do, it's in primer. You know, it has some of the original uh, hood and grill on it. So it looks like the old vehicle. Nothing's changed. It's as it was from 1957. It's an F head with a T90 and a Dane 18 and, a, you know, the same running gear and, uh, and suspension, everything. And I did that for him. I didn't modify that thing in the least. And I think it's going to be really special because, uh, you know, it'll, it'll one day be Nixon's vehicle. And I mean, let's be honest with what the, the automakers are building today. We're not going to be restoring, you know, jls like this it's no. this is just something that's a time capsule and it's going to be something that uh i hope nixon can appreciate one day so your parents your father is he's in his 80s right yes and, and then he just had a hip replacement two weeks ago yeah yeah very recently and it's uh he's he's doing his the best he can with it but this is his fourth or fifth major surgery in the last four years so he's had a really rough 
rough go at it. And I say that because he was uh, a practicing physician up until he was 81. I mean, my dad at 80 looked like he was in his late 60s. He was just killing it. Uh, same with my pap. My pap's 90, but I mean, he gets around great. So, you know, I hopefully accredit that to really good genetics. But the last few years have been really hard on my dad uh, since he retired. Just, you know, a fall here and there, he has bad osteoporosis. So any fall, you know, is 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 a huge problem. Man. And then your mom, you lost your mom when you were very young though, man. Eight, eight nine years old, breast cancer. Yep. I was eight years old. Uh, my sister was five. You know, I think that's a really valid thing to bring up because like I said, I mean, it was a lot of the reason that I am who I am today. I've always kind of been a person that has uh, tried to take, take what I have and make the best of it and always tried to be an optimist because, you know, there's a, bad, a lot of bad things in life. I mean, again, back to current day. I mean, if we can't be optimistic about where we as a society will come out of this COVID-19 thing, I, I think that's bad. But um, it's the reason that the human race is successful because, you know, the, the vast majority of us can take things and uh, make something out of it, make the best of it. And, uh, you know, it was hard for me, for sure. I mean, eight years old and losing your mom, like that leaves a lot of you blame yourself. I mean, I did. Uh, I couldn't even imagine being my sister at five. But again, that's a bad thing. But there's a lot of people that have a lot bigger problems. So I, I'm really fortunate for the family I have, I'm one of six. I have three older brothers, an older sister and a younger sister. And uh, they've all been a big part of my life for sure. And it's funny, you bring up my dad's age and the fact that I lost my mom as a as a kid, she was only 33. So that's something that most people start scratching their head and they're like, wait a second. Math on the fly. Yeah, they do math on the fly really quick. And I see it going on in their heads and I go, okay, I'll stop you right there. So yeah, my pap's 90, my dad's 86. Obviously, my pap is my mom's father. And my dad is actually older than his mother-in-law, if you can believe it. So you start adding up and you're like, that doesn't make sense. Well, this is, uh, it was my dad's second marriage. Uh, so my older brothers and sisters are, are half, but we were, uh, we're never really brought up like that. You know, we always had a really, really good relationship. And that was one of the things that my mom and dad were both like, they're, they are your brothers and sisters, you know, just because, uh, you know, our, our mothers were different doesn't, doesn't change anything. And like I said, it's funny out of that really, you know, my dad's divorce, like that was a hard time for all of my brothers and sisters, my father and their mother, but it all kind of came to be a, a really good thing because my sister and I are here because of it. You know, my father and his ex-wife have a great relationship. She's a big part of our life now, you know, looking back, it was the best thing, you know, everything happens for a reason. But at the time it was like, wow, this is terrible. You know, that was just a really hard thing for the family. But same thing with losing my mom as a, as a kid, it was a really hard thing to go through, but I had all my older brothers and sisters that were there for us. My older sister came home and spent that summer you know, away from school with my sister and I, just because of really, I mean, we were, it was my dad and my sister and I, and he was working full time, you know, to, to support us. So it was a really hard time, but it molded us into the people we are. What do all your siblings think about this, uh, this brother of theirs that is this, you know, world renowned racer? So <laughs> that's funny you say it that way. Cause that's, that's the way my dad describes it. And he's so funny because I am the only one in the family that forged down a path. Well, I can't say that I was going to say outside of medicine, but my older sister studied business as well. So we're, we're like-minded in that sense, but all my brothers are physicians and my uh, younger sister is a veterinarian. So they all had, you know, some interest in the medical field. So when I was younger and, uh, you know, I was going down that path, I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, do any of us know what we want to do really when we're in high school and even college at this point? Like, 
I'd say the vast majority would say no. So I just did what everybody else did. I, I studied bio. I shadowed my dad. I went to uh, the University of Scranton where, you know, it was his alma mater and my older brothers because they had a really good medical program. And uh, I got through my freshman year and or actually a first semester freshman year. And I was like, I just I don't love this. I had really good grades and I had to call my dad and have that conversation with him like, hey, I'm not going to follow in your footsteps. And that was a that was hard for me to do because I thought he was going to be disappointed, you know, but it's, it's just goes to show who my dad is because he said, um, with full support, he goes, you have to do what you love. And he always, always taught us that growing up. He said, you have to be happy in what you do or you, and you'll never work a day in your life. Otherwise you'll be miserable. So he gave me his full support. And he he asked me though, he goes, what are you going to do if you don't, if you don't become a doctor? I said, well, I'm going to study business. Why are you going to study business? Well, because I can do anything with business, dad. And he doesn't have that same entrepreneurial mindset that I do and that outlook. So still to this day, he, he like it blows his mind that, you know, if I don't go to work, I don't make money. Like I am my source of income. That's how it how it works. And uh, so it, it's been cool because everyone in my family kind of thought I was crazy to begin with. But they're like, well, he'll get a business degree. He'll work for someone. That'll be that. You know, none of us ever imagined what it could turn into. And then here we are. Yep. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the Talent Tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Branding hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Branding my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of forged 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. They're amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brannick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy pre-runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. And then growing up, 
you were heavily into sports and I know obviously that plays a part into your competitiveness, your ability to excel in a team environment. But one thing I always have seen that fascinates me on social media, and it's always what people that you know do that you're that is very different from the normal where you're at. I, I'm from Kansas, but I live in South Texas. There's no ice on any ponds around here. <laughs> and I'll see your social media, you guys, you know, suited up and playing ice hockey. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm, I, I got the opportunity when I was around the time that my mom was sick. Uh, we got a, we had a brand new YMCA built. Um, it was one of two, I think in the world that were going to have an ice rink at the time. And, uh, I was, again, like I said, an athlete my whole life, we were always encouraged from the time, you know, we were three, four to go play. So my brothers are all soccer players. I played baseball and in the winter, you know, I was playing like Sunday school basketball, but I really didn't love that. And to be honest, I could shoot a basketball, but I just, I wasn't great playing. I was always getting fouled out and it just, it wasn't my thing. And uh, that was a little frustrating for me because a lot of that stuff kind of came easy to me when that, that hockey ring came, I was like, wow, wait, you're telling me it's kind of like racing. It's kind of like the rock racing to the competitive rock crawling. It's not ballet. I'm like, you're telling me there's a sport that's kind of like soccer, but faster and you can hit people and it's legal. I'm like, that sounds more like me. I remember doing the first hockey camp at that Y. I couldn't even skate, Wyatt. I mean, we got some old skates from when my brothers were kids that I had. I mean, it was it was a joke. It was just kind of like my racing career. I had no idea what I was doing, but I loved it. I thought it was amazing, and it was the reason that I think I had so much fun with it and why it was such a big part of my life and why I, it molded me into who I am today just because of uh, where I started from, just from scratch, you know? And then you, you got injured in, in college playing hockey, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere with hockey. It was just one of those. It was just, uh, I was good and I enjoyed it. And we had, you know, we won some championships at home. I played travel. And uh, like I said, I had a, a chance to play at Scranton when I went to school and took it. I, I could have played soccer or baseball, but like I said, I loved hockey. And hell, I was probably better at baseball and I was a keeper in in soccer. I was really even better at those, but it wasn't my love. And, uh, I got hurt as a junior and it was around the time I tore my, my labrum and my shoulder. And, uh, I'd been lucky my whole life. I really didn't have any major, major injuries. And, uh, you know, my coach at the time at Scranton, he was a good coach, but he was, he was pretty strict. And, uh, I told, I would always try to tell him when I was going to be away with some of these rock crawling events so that we had, you know, eight to 10 defensemen and we dressed six or seven. So, you know, every couple games you would rotate out and sit. And so I'd say, all right, bench me these games and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be at all the practices and all the other games. Well, he would dress me on those games that I was going to be away because, you know, hockey wasn't my, my first priority, uh, in his eyes, which is completely respectable and understandable. It always kind of irked me because I'm like, man, I, I'm trying to do two things and I'm, you know, I'm half-assing both, you know, you try to whole ass one thing and that shoulder injury was kind of my come to Jesus. All right, I got to pick. And it really helped me go into the rock crawling, rock racing world, because at the same time, I knew that hockey was just fun for me. I wasn't doing anything with it. And I was like, wow, when I'm when I'm done school, like, what am I going to do? I'm just going to play like men's league or something for that competitive outlet. Like I was racing mountain bikes a little bit, but I wasn't, that was just for fun too. I, I really kind of was like, man, it can't be it. You can't just graduate and work and that'd be, that'd be that, you know, pay bills till you die. So I went the, the rock crawling racing route and I did that because I saw this tie between what I was studying with marketing 
and management and this industry that, you know, I could really build a career around. And I was always, always optimistic of that, even though it was super grassroots at the time. But did you ever think even at that time that you would be able to make this a full-time career that put food on the table and fed your family 365 days a year? No, of course not. I mean, like I said, I'm in my late teens, early twenties. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew what I loved and uh, I knew what made me happy and what I wanted to put my effort into. And where that would go. I didn't know. I don't know what's going to, what tomorrow will bring, but and that's again, enough, right? yeah, that's the adventure of life. That's what's so much fun. If you knew it wouldn't be any fun. Right. And then that sounds like Nixon in the background. Oh yeah. He's trying to open the door and come in here. He's up from his nap. So all right. <laughs> whole other so, element of life. No, this is a perfect segue. So you, you're married now. You married uh Lee light. Now she's Lee Miller light, Lee light Miller. <laughs> Yeah, we always joked about that. Yeah, Leah, Leah Miller, like I told her she should take. Right. So how did you guys meet? She, I know she's in. she's been in the industry forever. Same with you. Yeah. Again, it's like, you know, you, you look back at your life and you're like, I had no idea what I was doing. And why did I make this decision? Why did I make that decision? And uh, why did all this stuff happen to me? You know, and like I said, yeah, stuff, stuff happens to you every single day, but it's what you do with what happens to you that is important, right? You know, there's bad stuff every day that goes on. It's just how you, how you look at it and, uh, and handle it that, that really molds, molds your character. And it, it's funny. I always look back and see where I'm at today and, and the path that I'm on and know that everything in my life has happened for a reason, be it good or bad. And Leah is one of those things. I met her obviously because she worked within the industry when I'm met her. She was working, uh, she was the, uh, COO at poly performance and, and synergy, uh, manufacturing. Uh, she worked for Dave Schlossberg out there and she's originally from Alabama and, uh, she used to work in the Jeep shop down there and, you know, kind of had this opportunity to go out, to go out West. You know, she was born and raised in Alabama. You know, it's a, that's a whole nother thing is how she got out there, but she saw an opportunity and took it and, uh, had really good success at it. But if it wasn't for that, I would have never met her. I actually officially met her in Moab, Utah, where we ended up getting married. So it's kind of funny. Everything kind of comes full circle. Yeah. Wheeling. Yeah. No, you guys, your wedding pictures are gorgeous. Just I mean, sunset Moab, the rim, the red rocks, yeah, something else. And now you guys have a, you have a nine month, I'm sorry, a 14 month old now Nixon. Yeah. Nine months doesn't seem that long ago. It's, it's crazy. Um, you know, everybody says it goes, it goes by too fast. It's really, it's a cliche with little kids, but it's so true. And it, it makes me, um, you know, even more cognizant of it today. We have 10 new chicks and, you know, Leah's into, into chickens and, you know, we've, we've got a small farm and enjoy that, that part of our lives. And it's cool to, to kind of submerse Nixon. Uh, and get him involved with that kind of stuff to show him like where his food comes from and how this whole world revolves. And it's really, it's crazy to watch those things grow up every day. They get bigger. I mean, like noticeably bigger each day. And I mean, he's 14 months now he's running around like crazy. I mean, if you tell him something, he completely understands you and, and does it. Uh, he, you know, his, his vocabulary is way more broad than he lets on. He has like two words and tractor being, being number one, right? Everything's a tractor to the kid. It's really funny, but, uh, he's really with it. Super smart. And, uh, like I said, he knows everything you're saying. He watches everything you do and mimics it. And it's like, it's scary. We, Lee and I keep looking at each other and we're like, wow, we're to the point where 
everything matters, right? As a baby, you can, you know, put them down and they're going to be where you left them for a while. Right. And then they start crawling and they start walking and they start listening. And, oh man, it's, it's a, it's an adventure, but I had a really good dad to kind of look back and figure out how to do this. And I'm, I'm lucky he's still around to be a part of it. Cause man, he loves that baby just as much as I do. Well, I got to meet Nixon at KOH this year. I got to see him. He's pushing around a little dump truck and picking up, yeah. uh, uh, means dry Lake, Lake bed, junk yeah i mean uh yep. probably some nails you know definitely rocks uh and just shovel them in there and pushing around and then i got to see him uh pre-diaper change that was uh that was something else uh but man it's really cool to it, for me you know i have a 12 year old and a nine year old and i've purged probably those first three years of their life from memory so i think for you right. like when you get to you know when nixon's 12 or so and you get to go back you know i'm gonna go back and listen to that interview and where we talk about him and be like, oh man, that little turd. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that today before before I, uh, we called each other here. Just being able to like look back on this interview and see where I was at this point in my life because it's it's funny. I mean, he this is his second KOH. He was three weeks old last year when we brought him out. And everybody thought we were crazy, and they said, "Why are you taking that baby out there?" So because he's a part of our life. I'm not going to just because he's a baby take away uh, an experience for him. And Leah has been amazing as a mother, you know, being able to take the load off me. Cause I mean, that's a, that's a tough, tough couple of weeks for everybody. King of the hammers. Uh, she had just given birth to him and we're in the middle of my cars of essentially a bare chassis. So she has been awesome and fully supportive. And like I said, at the beginning of this interview, it's, it's, it's a team thing. Like I do the driving, but I mean, to, to me, that's the easy part of it. I, that's my deal. That's what I'm, what I excel at, but without all the help from everybody else, you know, we wouldn't have the team that we do. Yeah. She does a lot for you. And I know, uh, I'd scheduled with her. She was to actually be one of the KOH sessions. Yeah. And she, she had like early hammer long and we, we kind of joke about it. It's not funny at all, but we were all really sick through that month of January. And she would, it was me first. And man, I don't know if we didn't have some form of COV-19. I don't, I don't know. It was bad. I had weeks of it and it was respiratory and fever and flu. And I had to fight through that. And it wasn't until like really after qualifying that I really started to feel better. And, uh, I thought I was going to have to race another, another KOH sick. Cause the year before I raced sick as a dog. And that was, uh, that was hard. That was really hard. Yeah. You still did pretty well though. <laughs> well, you look back though and you're like, man, everything has to fall into place to, to have your day. And, uh, this year it was Josh's day for sure. Now you guys, uh, you and Lee, uh, you guys have a, have a farm there in Cumberland. You mentioned the chickens. I think you're, you're into goats though. From what I've seen, you've got, you've got a, got a herd of goats. She is for sure. Like all the, the Oh, they're hers. The animal- they're not yours. I oh, thought they yeah, were they're yours. Goats. They're not mine. I, I love them. I think they're great because they're, uh, they're useful. They're functional. Like they, they clean up all the crap that everything else won't eat. So it's like a, a perfect component of a farm. And, you know, we don't have a, a full functioning farm, but it's just, you know, kind of a little hobby thing that we enjoy. And like I said, can really bring Nixon up around that to show him how this all works as far as life and where his food comes from. But yeah, for me, uh, it, that's her stuff, the, the property and managing that and everything. That's kind of my wheelhouse. You know, I, I enjoy all that kind of stuff. Well, you brought up the, you know, showing where your food comes from. And man, if, if anything, this, this whole virus thing has shown so many people. Well, I mean, I just saw, I just saw it yesterday that, uh, that they had to come out, you know, Department of Homeland Security had to come out and say, and add agriculture to the industries that were, uh, you have to have them. And those guys, they actually had been omitted from that list. And that felt, 
insanely crazy. And I, and, but it also makes me think about when I've seen social media posts, like people saying like about hunters, why do they need to shoot an animal? Why can't they just go get their meat at Kroger like the rest of us? And it's so crazy that the society today thinks that way and why it's so important to teach your kids. Like what I learned from my grandfather, it all goes back to that farm. Like when my great grandfather would go out hunting, he wouldn't stop shooting until there wasn't anything left moving. He had 15 children to feed and that's really real. Um, so for me, like I'm hunting's not my thing. I am a hunter and I do it because I enjoy it and out of practice, you know, like out of necessity, I enjoy knowing where my food comes from. So to see what we're facing today, again, like I live where I do for a reason. It's because we are in a really good spot to be completely self-sufficient. I mean, I'm no prepper, right? I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but I'm always, I always want to be ready. You know, it's just like racing. You want to be ready for anything that comes. So we're good. I've got generator hookups to my shop and my house, got food, fuel, water, you name it. I've got backups for my backups. And I think it could come to that at some point. I mean, hopefully not in our lifetimes, but you never know. I mean, this is all out of left field, right? Like completely in in December before Christmas, this was the last thing anybody was worried about. Now it's essentially brought our economy to a screeching halt. It's scary. It's a scary thing going on. Yeah. I I just feel the, you know, we're two, three, four, five generations removed from the farm and people have lost what that connection was like truly where their food comes from. And that to me is scary. It's very scary because it is literally integral to sustaining life. And the fact that they had to like bring agriculture in after the fact is almost comical. I mean, it is, it's our lifeblood. Like it should be one of the most focused industries. And it's, it's just like every trade in this country. And, you know, you have the millennial generation and the snowflakes, everybody jokes about it, but it's, it's serious. Like we've put down blue collar trades in this country for so long and pushed the fact that you had to have a college education and get a job. And, and like I said, almost make those trades like what undesirable and farming. That's one of them. Like even the, the children of farmers, it's scary. They don't want to do it because it's uh, such a hard lifestyle. And I don't know if everybody's looking for an easy way out, but we need to get back to what really makes this country go around. And it was one of the reasons that I wanted to go into uh, business in the field that I did was because I enjoy making things with my own hands. Like I enjoy being able to rely on myself for whatever that need may be and to kind of be like a jack of all trades and probably why I like ultra four. I mean, I mean, what a better sport to try to build a four-wheel drive vehicle that can be the best at all things uh, automotive, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. So, oh, no, absolutely. And I know you love making things. And I've seen some, you know, we've all seen the stuff that you've made, but you're into woodworking as well. Are you good at it? I assume you are. So this is also funny. So Leah, Leah is the uh, one into woodworking. So, so big, but my father and grandfather are into wood and they thought I was crazy that I enjoyed metal. Right. And I thought they were crazy that they liked working with wood. And I also didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy gardening when I was younger. My dad and grandfather both did. And you know, as a kid, I thought that that was stupid. Right. And now you have one. Exactly. And that's, and honestly, why it's funny, I'm finishing up this Jeep and Leah's into woodworking. I always kind of gave her heck about it as we kind of prepare to build Nixon, a tractor bed, you know, out of wood. 
wood's hard for me because I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, right? So with metal, you can hold really tight tolerances. Things can be like quote unquote perfect. Wood has a lot of variables in it and that's hard for me to get over. But at the same time, I have a, a, a really deep respect for it. And uh, a lot of talented people in my family are, are good at that. My brother-in-law is a very talented woodworker. My dad was his whole life. Same with my grandfather. So I see myself as we move forward, getting more and more into that uh, as, as we kind of move forward. I, I really enjoy it. So when you decided uh, to, I guess, run down the path you are, you talked to your dad, you talked your dad into, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get into business. And at what point kind of in there did you say Miller Motorsports is a thing? Is it, it wasn't immediately out of, out of college. I, I know at one point, I remember you working for Pat, but I think you already had Miller Motorsports going. Yes. Yeah. So the pack opportunity came out of me racing and everything. And, and Miller Motorsports was infancy. Yeah, it was in its infancy. I mean, it was kind of uncertain. Like I was really kind of racing as a hobby because it was also grassroots at the time. And it kind of plays into like, how do you get into the sport today? And and that's a, a multi-level question. But the opportunity to work for pack came out of me racing and I jumped at the opportunity because I kind of realized that was the direction that I was going no matter what was uh, to work in the industry, right? When I started studying business and marketing and management, that was always the the end goal, right? I figured, I told my dad, I said, look, I said, if I study marketing, I can get a bunch of people to help support what I'm doing um, with, with my racing. And, you know, he goes, well, what if, what if the racing ends or whatever? I said, well, I said, I can always, you know, work for one of those partners. Like I'm building these relationships and um, helping develop these products and, you know, firsthand through what I'm doing. So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. I'm like, that'll be a great way to, you know, have a primary income. So I took the opportunity and, and went to work for PAC. And uh, that was a, a really good thing because I, I had the freedom to work remotely. I was a uh, in product development and sales and marketing for them. And uh, I'd go into the office up in Detroit, you know, once a month and uh, spend a couple of days or a week and then come back. And so I still could run my race program, handle everything that we had going on in the shop and, and work for pack, like I said, remotely during the day. So I was juggling a lot. I did it for, uh, for three years. It kind of got to the point for me, I learned a lot from pack because it's a, it's such a large corporation. It's a family owned deal that, is over a hundred years old, which was really cool. So it was, it's cool to see the corporate side of things while frustrating at the same time, right? To know you were predominantly in just the suspension spring side of the business, or were you doing the drivetrain springs? No, I was in the aftermarket division. I was with pack racing. So Peterson, um, America, which was the, the parent company, which did everything, uh, with, you know, valve and springs for seats and automobiles, anything that was a spring in a car they made for the uh, automotive industry. So that was like the corporate side. We were kind of like the, the small aftermarket division that was really driven by racing. But like I said, we had those corporate limitations and frustrations because we were a spinoff of that that we had to deal with. And so it kind of really gave me that firsthand experience of how a business should or shouldn't be run per se. And uh, why I feel so strongly about the trades today, like why we go right from high school into college and then expected to work is a job with zero experience. It's crazy. Why don't we take a year or two and, and be forced into an apprenticeship or internship where you learned firsthand working for someone, how whatever your field of interest is 
works and then go get that formal education. And now you have the hands-on training. It's, it's kind of a backward system. So it was good for me as a small business owner to see how a large corporation runs and how uh, the pros and cons of that. And then you also ended up with some essential skills out of that. You ended up with a, a CDL, right? That's still, that's an essential industry today. You could always fall back on that. Yeah, it's funny. And my dad kind of, he kind of laughed when I said, Hey, I'm, I'm getting my CDL. He's like, what? You're going to be a truck driver now? He goes, I never thought I'd have a son that would be a truck driver, let alone own a class A truck. He's like, you, you know, he sat me down one day. He goes, you realize you have a tractor trailer. I said, you realize that that semi sitting out in the drive, you know, with the trailer behind it costs less than a brand new one ton truck these days. Like it's, it's just kind of crazy how you you know, needs necessitate what you do in, in life. And I went through some duallys in my time hauling all over this country to go racing. But uh, but yes, I have a CDL. I got it because of pack. And the irony is I had to get that CDL to drive an F450 with a race trailer behind it, right? We already had a class eight truck at that point that I was, just, it was an RV, right? It was private my, for my own personal use. Yep. Ended up getting my CDL for pack and still hold it today. And yeah, dad kind of gave me a little heck about that. He said, well, if none of this stuff works out, he goes, you can always go be a truck driver. <laughs> I said, well, dad, I said, I like to be able to do, you know, everything and not depend on anyone. Oh man. So you early years of off-road, early years of racing, we touched on Paragon a little bit, but what was that? That was about 06 in your TJ. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, uh, first XRA event. I mean, I was, I was doing that new rock series, which was a local rock crawling deal. You rock a little bit of, we rock. I was actually building a car in 2008, a ProMod vehicle that I worked with a, a friend out of Missouri. Uh, his name was John Markovich. I uh, met him through XRA in my Jeep. Yeah, Marco Customs. Whatever happened to Marco? Dude, Marco is, <laughs> he's down in Tennessee. He's okay. got a farm. So he was in Columbia, Missouri. I remember he yes. was at Columbia, Missouri. And then, I don't know, somewhere around 2012 or 13, in my book, he, he, he left the scene Marco's got it figured out. Yeah, he, he did. I mean, he, he actually, uh, he moved to Australia for a while. He got married, moved to Australia. He's a big hunter and Marco's super talented with, uh, you know, metal fabrication, anything, you know, he's really good with his hands and went over to Australia, spent a few years and actually came back and bought a farm here in Tennessee. It's been a couple of years since I talked to him, but, uh, he, he just, you know, John, I saw eye to eye with, because he was one of those guys that just kind of was to himself laying low um, and kind of only reliant on himself and himself. And he's got that, that farm down there now. And I know he's doing, uh, doing work out of there as far as fabrication goes and essentially just living off the land. That's, that's Marco. Please tell him hi, if you have a way to reach out to him, because I need to reach out to him. Cause it's like I said, it's been years and uh, you know, we'll probably pick right back up where we left off, but he was a really good friend of mine. We kind of saw eye to eye and he kind of took me under his wing there a little bit, um, you know, because he knew him and I both we were like, man, I'm just so outclassed in this Jeep. He's like, you got to get into a buggy. And I just, I didn't have, I never built anything from scratch. I didn't have the skill set. John had built a couple cars and uh, he's like, well, he's like, I will help you do it out here if you want to, you know, it'd be a, a really good partnership, I think. And so, uh, so we started building the pro mod car together in, in uh, Missouri at his shop there, Marco customs. And that was, it was going to be actually why it had the drivetrain to a moon buggy that I was going to build a stock mod TJ out of. Right. And, uh, big rich kind of, kind of told me at that time, it was like 2008. He's like, yeah, he's like, we're just going to kind of focus on pro mod and unlimited. And, uh, 
not really give the the stock mod class much coverage. And I was like, I just, I think that's the wrong move. I said, that's the way for guys to get into this sport. I think that, you know, if you just focus on those two classes, it makes it unattainable for the every guy that's coming out and watching us. We need to grow this sport. And that's why I love that stock mod class so much because it was attainable, right? It was stuff that guys were almost driving anyway. So I, the class had gotten crazy. People were starting to build specific cars for that or Jeeps, you know, whatever. And I started thinking in my head, how can I bend the rules and build something really, really cool? And I said, there's no reason you couldn't shove a moon buggy drivetrain in a little, in a TJ, right? Just do a ground up build with the frame. So I had an Ecotec and a power glide, a five Oh Atlas offset spider tracks housings. I was going to build this myself at home. And uh, Rich kind of shot that down and said, you know, you just not, it's not what, where we're going, right? And We Rock was pretty much the premier rock crawling body at the time. So John and I got together an XRA event and decided to switch gears and build this pro mod car. And I said, well, I got all this stuff. Let's do it. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing and helped me. And man, I learned a lot from him just about, you know, chassis fabrication layout. And, uh, you know, he was definitely one of the people that, that showed me that stuff. And it's funny, we keep looking back. Clayton from uh, Clayton Offroad. He was one of, he was my first sponsor, right? We actually built my TJ in 2000, in 04 for 2005 at his shop up in Connecticut. So it's funny, you circle back and you're like, how did you get where you're at without really any formal training? I mean, I didn't have any, uh, it's not like, you know, my dad did this or anything. I was kind of forging my own path here. And it, it's, it was a few certain people like that, that really helped me. And Clayton was uh, always optimistic. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll help you build this. And he was my first sponsor. And he was kind of close up in Connecticut because I was in school in PA, but it comes full circle. So Clayton helped me out. And then Marco did, and we built that thing to a, uh, to a roller, John and I, before I took it home to finish it out. That was 08, right. In that season, I'd kind of taken off to build this buggy because it was, it's a, big deal. I'm a kid, like trying to build a car and uh, figure out what direction I want to go. It was then that season I had off finishing that car for 2009. Well, what came in 2009? The RCQ, right? So I still had a Jeep. I'll kind of let you segue into that thing then. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> well, that was when I met you in, in 2008 uh, XRA. And then yeah. I remember with the RCQ was a really big deal around that. If we put ourselves back in our, our bodies 10 years ago, it was all pirate was lit up about it because it was kind of a, I don't know, a, a realization. It, it was a recognition of East coast racers that there was truly racing outside of California or they're outside of the West coast. Cause pirate was predominantly all West coast guys. They really didn't acknowledge that there was people that were into off road outside of, uh, outside of their little part of the world. And then here you came along, you know, by 2010, and, you know, winning King of the Hammers a, a little bit later, but this Maryland guy winning King of the Hammers, I mean, it blew some minds. I mean, they, in their book, that was their little baby. It was always going to be like a Shannon Campbell or a Randy Slauson winning. Even when Lauren won, it was uh, kind of almost a wake-up call for him. They, they were like, who's this guy? Yeah, and, and that's funny. You bring up Pirate and who's this guy? There was a thread that was started right after KOH in 2010, and it was who is Eric Miller? That was the title of the thread. And I laughed when I first saw it because I was, you know, a college kid on Pirate on the East Coast. And like you said, it was primarily a West Coast thing. And we had finished fifth that first year in uh, in that Twisted Customs car. Man, I look back at that race and all the things that we didn't know and the things that we did wrong. And I don't know what the time was, but it was something like 
I don't know, Lauren had us by 18 minutes, something stupid like that, right? It was not a huge time deficit when you, all things considered, when I look back at that race. And uh, really, I had a flat and just being dumb, didn't have a jack because it had fallen off the car. And it took Robbie and I probably, I mean, if I had to guess a half an hour to change a tire in the desert, flexing the car out, digging a hole in a ditch, blah, blah, blah. And I look back and I'm like, guys, we were literally, if you could pick one thing and change it, right? Everybody does that about their races. What can I improve? And what can, what would have been the, the defining moment for me? A tire change. I said, we could have won this race. And we did so many things wrong. And that lit a fire for me and gave me the confidence to know that someone from Maryland can win this race. A kid can win this race. And uh, that race really set in stone for me my just 100% drive to focus on and make that a life goal of mine is to win this King of the Hammers race. And if it wasn't two years later, we did it. And we were damn close in 11 when I had one of those bad finishes where we had a big mechanical. And, and again, you say bad finish, it was 14th. But <laughs> Well, I know, but all things considered, that 14th and that 24th are probably some of my most proud finishes because I, there was not a race that I worked harder for. Let's put it that way. I put some miles under my belt with some parts on my back to make those two things happen. And a lot of guys would have quit. A lot of guys would have given up. And they have. So we, we did, we kind of jumped forward just a hair. Yes. We you, did. Into, you, you, it's, but it's, it's great because this kind of, that kind of 2008, 2009, 2010 era for you was huge. I mean, it was huge for the sport, huge for the industry, huge for King of the Hammers blowing up. But you went from your, you know, your pro mob build to sitting back and going, I need something else. And you ended up with a twisted customs car. I'm just confirming. Was it Yoshim's car? Was that whose it was? I don't remember how you ended up in a buggy though. And I know there's a story like around you talking to your father about it and the direction you were wanting to go. Yep. It was one of those things where we sat around, we were building that pro mod car after I qualified through the RCQ, which, you know, we can come back to, we were sitting around a campfire up at, uh, up in Brant Lake. I was part of the, the North Jersey Jeep club. And uh, a lot of those guys that were part of that club were a part of my race effort for RCQ. Right. And they were going to come out and help me at King of the Hammers. And we were kind of trying to put on paper the, the, what we needed to make that pro mod, even a, a rock racer, let alone a endurance race car a big, big chunk of change later after I added up all the parts, I was like, this is stupid. Like this car is not, it's an inch and a half 095 pro mod. That's 48 inches wide with a four cylinder in it. Like this is not a KOH car. I'm joking myself. If I take this out West to, if I'm going to put the time and effort in to take this car out there and mind you, I still had, all I had, it was a beat up YJ at the time that, you know, all of the drivetrain from my TJ, which met its fate just from years of trying to follow guys like yourself in tube cars, right? Rock crawling. All I had was my Jeep. And I say that because I was Jeep on 35s following guys in buggy country and uh, cutting lines that cars on stick, you know, 40 inch sticky tires and V8s were running. And we were running all this stuff in Jeeps. And that's kind of what, you know, led me to build that first buggy. But as a transitionary thing, we were wheeling every other weekend. So I was always in my Jeep kind of getting seat time. But man, it, it really showed in the uh, <laughs> aesthetics of it because that thing was just completely hammered. Raisined. Um, Completely oh raisined. Oh my God, that poor, well, the TJ, like I said, I had to pull the good parts out of it to put in a YJ that I linked and put on air shocks just to have another vehicle to uh, to recreate in. And that's the vehicle that I qualified for KOH in a, a YJ on air shocks and 37s. And oh my God, I look back and we thought we were fast. We really did in that thing. <laughs> 
So, so the twisted car came to be after sitting around that fire and figuring out what we really needed to uh, invest to go out west and even have a chance of of competing. So, my plan at that point was to, you know, we were running out of time. This was like the end of the summer, and KOH is in February. So, my plan at the time was hopefully to get a twisted customs roller or, or, you know, chassis that was suspension and drivetrain mounts and finish it out myself and go out there for that first race. And I kind of gravitated toward their, their cars because they had a, a signature look. I think that that was important. You know, always the buggies looking like something, those guys were always very successful. So I called, called up, uh, Jason and, and talked to him out there and told him what I was after. And, you know, they, they kind of laughed and said, yeah, we can have one. We can deliver it to the lake bed. This, <laughs> this roller, <you're> <laughs> right. For. And I'm like, that's just, I, I have to have something to race. And they're like, well, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, fire selling some stuff off and um, actually scaling down the size of the shop and the operation. We're getting rid of some of our cars. We, we have one for sale. And I, and I told them, I said, nah, I'm not interested at all. I thought that they were selling that YJ that had the yellow tube work. That was a pro mod XRA car. It was, had been around forever. I think Brian and Joachim raced together. And Joachim was like, no, 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 no. It's not that car. We built one last year that has only raced KOH and like one or two other XRAs and has been parked. And I said, okay, you know, I'm now I'm, I'm interested because I, I didn't want some, an old rock car. Like I was going to build that anyway. I knew that that wasn't going to win KOH. He told me about this thing. They built it specifically for King of the Hammers. They built it at 54 inches with a, a V8 and, you know, big two and a half inch coilovers, which is funny today. Right? right. But that was a big thing then it had all spider tracks running gear. And, uh, he told me the price on it and it was literally a fire sale and it was actually a lower number than all those parts I needed to convert my rock crawler in any way to go race King of the Hammer. So, you know, I kind of went to my dad and I said, Hey, look, I said, this is like the fall already. I said, I've got to build something. I want to build something, but the time isn't there. And I just, I don't have the experience to do it from scratch all myself right now. I was very real about that. And I don't think I would have even made King of the Hammers, let alone done well if we went that route. I essentially asked him for a loan to get this whole thing going and ball rolling down the hill so we could pick this car up, come home, race it back east here uh, at Roush where they had a, a series going on there at the time and then strip it down over the winter and go race King of the Hammers in February. And uh, that's what we did. My buddy Jake and I, you know, my, my dad took my word for it and, and uh, you know, invested in me and had faith that I would be a man of my word and pay him back on his investment and uh really gave me the rope to go kind of prove myself to him and, and make something of myself and went out there bought that car and brought it home first race i raced it at roush dnf i stuffed that car on uh on one of those ridges on its nose all in a mess and tried to uh tried to back up out of it i mean i literally it was just up on its front tire stuffed in a hole and you weren't getting it out blew up a front stub and this is this is actually a a turning point for me. You know, I thought this thing was what a machine, right? Indestructible. I'm like, wow, this thing is not, it was a spider tracks outer and uh, DNF that first race. And again, look back at it and said, what could I have done differently? Well, call those spider tracks. I needed to get a stub. Tom Kingston, obviously who owns spider tracks at the time, they were a smaller company said to me, he goes, he goes, wait, you broke what? And I told him, and he said that from it's a, the twisted car that they built last year. Yeah, those, that's a 300M35 spline stub. You broke that? I'd love to see it. I said, okay, sure. And he said, who are you? Who are you? you know? And I said, oh, I'm you know, Eric from the East. He goes, 
we need to keep in touch. So I sent Tom that Axel Chef back. You know, he warranted it in good faith. And uh, again, I didn't really think much of it at the time because I was so focused on that next race and getting ready for it where how can I improve? Well, that next race, we got that stub, got that car back together, went out. And my dad said, what do you think you did wrong? I said, I was trying to be fast. He said, why don't you try to finish this time? I said, all right. I'm serious. This is is true. He said, well, why don't you just try to finish and see how you do? Well, damn it if we didn't go out and win that race and win by a pretty big margin. And, uh, man, I had to reflect on that, Wyatt, and say, you know, my dad was right. I go, I need to finish these races before I even – think about trying to get faster first, right? Because I was so new to all this. That was my first win in that car. And uh, it was after that we went, we decided to go out for Thanksgiving holiday, right? Which is a big thing in Johnson Valley to go. I'd never been west of Moab, (laughs) right? And I kind of went out there for Easter Jeep on my own just to see it. So I had to go see this area that we were going to go race in Johnson Valley because it was so really mystical loss. We didn't know what the heck. I'd never been to the desert, right? I'd never run a desert race. So we loaded this twisted car up and on a flat deck trailer with my YJ and uh, Kevin Letter and my co-driver Robbie and myself drove it out there in my Dodge. We spent the week on the lake bed. We pulled up with an equipment trailer and this old Dodge Dually. You know, we're surrounded by diesel pushers and toters and toy haulers. And, you know, it looked like a mini King of the Hammers on the lake bed over Thanksgiving. And we're like, what the hell are we getting ourselves into, right? We were these rednecks from Maryland with a beat YJ and on this equipment trailer. We spent that entire week out there going off Twisted's old KOH route. I got to see the old course that was in that low Lowrance. And I just kind of went through it like it was like I was studying for an exam and just learned what were the gotchas out there. Because, I mean, you watch desert racing, you see trophy trucks just you know ripping down the sides of of roads doing 100 miles an hour and you just think from an east coast standpoint desert racing is all about speed well that can be further from the truth right that's what it looks like from the outside but when you actually go out and and see what what you have to um, navigate and get through man there's a lot of pitfalls in the desert that's where that race is lost right that's where king of the hammers is lost to me and i learned that that first thanksgiving and if it wasn't for that first pre-run and doing that i don't think i even would have finished in 2010 honestly so it kind of all fell into place we did that pre-run brought that car home stripped it to a bare chassis and and prepped it fully for koh and went out there that first year and finished fifth so that's kind of the short of how it started stay tuned Your talent tank is in full get. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but. With extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yod, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. 
LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples. They've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website, magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you are a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT. 10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. Well, you went to EJ, EJS and uh, Moab, and that was, I mean, jumping back just right in front of this. Was that really your first time out to Moab? Is that when you kind of fell in love? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was, I was 18 at the time because I was a freshman in college. And uh, yes, I convinced my, uh, my buddy, my best friend from high school, uh, Jordan, who was my first spotter for new rock and all that stuff. And, uh, I convinced him, I said, Hey, you know, he was, him and I were always, we raced mountain bikes together and, uh, you know, spent all high school, you know, exploring stuff, camping the whole nine yards. I said, dude, let's, let's take our spring break. Like forget going to the beach and doing all that kind of crap. Cause it's not our scene. So let's go to Moab. And he was like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Like, he's like, well, I don't even know where to start. I said, neither do I, but I know where it is. Let's go. Right. And so <laughs> I love this plan. We, yeah, that was the plan. That was the extent of the planning. I know where it is. Let's go. I didn't even know we weren't even signed up through the red rock four wheelers or anything at that point. We towed my YJ or, or my TJ out there. Uh, just him and I, man, that trip again, it was one of those like life experiences that really kind of molded me because we were just, we were just stupid 18 year old kids. It's funny because that trip is where we met. John Kappa and Christian Hazel, just by chance, they were fooling around on a dump bump and we were going to run Hell's Revenge for the first time alone in this TJ. It was like an 03 Rubicon that we, Clayton Adam and I had done a one tons under and, you know, I had to began stripping down because I knew I was going to compete that year. And those guys saw the Jeep as we went across the ridge and I waved at them because I knew what their trucks looked like and all that. And they caught up to us on escalator and they were like, uh, so what's up with your Jeep? You know, what's your story? And, uh, you know, didn't really think much of it. I said, yeah, you know, we, I had this Jeep. It's just my daily driver. We're going to compete with it this year. And they were like, is that thing really a Rubicon? I'm like, yeah. Like why? You know, they're like things like almost new. You're going to compete with it. I'm like, yeah, it's what I got. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's my car. I, it's, I don't know how else to do it. They have a stock class. Let's yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And they thought that was just the craziest thing. They said, well, you mind if we tag along and take some pictures? Like this thing's really cool. I'm like, yeah, that'd be awesome. So we went wheeling with them for the day. Didn't think anything of it. Right. Uh, and that was in April. Get back. They contacted me, said, Hey, just submit some specs on this thing. Like we might do a little write up on it, uh, in the future. We thought it was cool. Nice meeting you. Sounds great. They called me in November. I was a sophomore, you know, starting my first deal of business classes, starting marketing the whole nine yards. It was John Cappy. He said, Hey, uh, I finally got that article done. It's going to be in the December issue. So check it out on the newsstand when you get a chance. And he kind of chuckled at me. I said, all right, cool. You know, I didn't think anything of it. I walked in like I did every month to Barnes and Noble to pick up four wheeler JP, the whole nine yards. Right. Cause what I was we used a, to do that. Oh what yeah. We used to do. I mean, I, every month I loved it. And why it, it hit me. It slapped me in the face. Like there was this gold truck 
on orange MRWs on the cover of the JP magazine in December, 2005. And I was like, Holy shit. That's you. You know, that was me. I was like, that is, and he didn't tell me it was the cover shot. Right. He let me, he let that be a thing. And yeah. So that kind of was like so surreal and really showed me I'm like, wow, I can do something with this. I can do something with this as far as a, a marketing standpoint. And I used that first article in JP to really kind of garner my first set of sponsors for 2005. Cause I had nothing to go off of. I was just some kid that wanted to go rock crawling. So, you know, I had no credibility, right. Whatsoever. I'm just Joe Schmo. I'm going to go compete, help me out. Right. And, uh, I got my first round of support through a lot of people that I had already been using their products like, you know, BF Goodrich and, you know, spider tracks and people that really kind of help, help me get started. And, uh, I think that's, that's a cool story. So. I do. I love that. I I think where I keep trying to highlight it, and I think in your, you're spot on and it, I mean, it's your life, but it's all the little touch points that happened early on and between 2004 and 2005, 2006, all the way through 09, you kept having these really insanely cool, good people, great humans come into your life. Tom Kingston at Spiretracks, an amazing human. That guy, uh, I mean, I'd love to get inside his head. I, I don't know. I'd probably, it, it probably is in binary. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, uh, that you've had these amazing little little touch points that have directed you and shifted you into effectively starting Miller Motorsports, and then when you guys end up with the Twisted Customs car from uh, from Jason Polly and and Joshim, with your dad's support and Miller Motorsports being born, but you you're almost up playing it versus you were in Cumberland, Maryland, in the middle of nowhere. You prep out of a pole barn. And you get, you know, I, I think one year, if, if the story was told to me correctly, that for one, one year, your father gave you a welder for Christmas. That was like, that's right. That's very true. And that's because I didn't have anyone to like, kind of show me the way. And it's funny, my oldest brother, Robert, he's uh, in the metal fabrication. He's like I said, he's a physician as, as well as my other brothers, but he was, he has this engineering mind, right? He should have all my brothers. None of them should have been doctors. They all have these amazing talents in other industries like my brother he should have been an engineer my youngest brother he's uh it's funny he actually retired and he does uh some volunteer stuff with habitat for humanity so i mean he's a carpenter he's phenomenal uh my middle brother doug uh he's probably one of the best athletes out of all of us and a super talented musician like all of us have these skill sets outside of like i said i was good at medicine but i just i didn't love it and those guys it wasn't their passion like it is my father's my dad was very very passionate about medicine and helping people and it was why he was so successful at his job and he always says he never worked a day in his life because he enjoyed it so much but i circle back to to that welder for christmas my dad tried to help me where he could because this was this unknown for for us like the the first thing that ever happened was uh when i had had that tj was uh, tore the gears out of it right just from being a stupid kid and running mud right got water in the diffs wrecked the rear end, had to re-gear it anyway because I was going to bigger tires, trying to learn all this stuff. And he's like, well, how are you going to fix that? I'm like, I I don't know. Take it to a shop. Like, I don't know. What's that going to cost? I don't know. Gears are a thousand, fifteen hundred bucks plus the labor. I mean, you're two grand or more. Right. And he's like, well, that's crazy. You know, he goes, I I don't want to do that. I'm like, I don't blame you. He goes, what's the other option? It's sitting. I'm like, well, he goes, why don't you do it yourself? I'm like, because I don't know how. He's like, well, why don't you learn? I'm like, all right, I would love to learn. He goes, okay, so do it. I said, well, I don't have the tools. He goes, all right, I'll make you a deal. 
you figure out what tools you need and you figure out how to set up gears and I will get you, I will buy you those tools. I said, all right, that sounds like a great deal. So he invested in me so that I could learn these skills because I didn't have any other way to do it. And uh, I really am so grateful for that because without his support in that regard, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn how to set up gears. Uh, I asked for a welder for Christmas when we were building that TJ to compete because my brother taught me how to weld on a little Miller Thunderbolt stick welder at the, you know, on a summer vacation, but I didn't have any equipment to do it. That was my brother's welder. But, you know, my brother showed me how to weld, got me interested and hooked in that. And then my dad being there to say, all right, well, if you're going to build a roll cage, you need to weld it together. And I said, yep. And I bought a used tubing bender from Clayton. Clayton had bought a better one. And so it was all kind of, all this timing worked out well. And like I said, my dad knew I wanted to build my cage. So I bought bought that used bender and he bought me a a Millermatic 251. And I still, at Miller Motorsports, use that welder every single day. And it's it's kind of a special thing for me because, uh, you know, I learned to weld on that thing. And without him, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So I've always tried to take every opportunity that I've been afforded and make the absolute most of it and never never leave anything on the table. Because like I said, there's a lot of people that don't have the opportunity or even worse, have the opportunity and squander it. Yeah, doing less with more. Definitely a huge key to being successful. I said that wrong. I'm going to rephrase that even. Uh, I won't even cut it out. Doing more with less. Not less yes, with absolutely. Doing more with less. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's been my whole racing career from trying to race a Jeep up through really where I'm at now and where I still currently am because I'm still racing a straight axle car against a field of independent cars. And we, I mean, the numbers show it. We are holding our own and doing it, doing it very well. So no chicken wings, nothing yet <laughs> and nothing in the pipeline. I mean, we've talked about it. Like, obviously it's, it's not a secret that, for a lot of the racing venues, Reno and, you know, Ridgecrest, desert stuff, heck, even some of the desert sections of King of the Hammers, independent is is king. I mean, it, it absolutely has its advantages over a solid axle platform. But I built the cars that we run today for one reason, and that was to win King of the Hammers. And to do it in 2020 and it be our platform with a different driver and me be right behind Josh, two solid axle cars on the podium when, uh, you know, this whole trend is, is independent is so special to me. I think it's funny because IFS is definitely superior in these venues we're racing today. But if you took the top 20 ultra four guys and I'll stand behind this and you put those people in a pro chassis or another, you know, proven reliable solid axle platform, those same guys would be finishing right where they're finishing. It's not the independent, right? It definitely is more forgiving in the desert, but it's the, it's the teams, it's the talent, it's the components. It's, it's so much more than the suspension. And I think people really overlook that because we're doing more with less, but it's not just the suspension. That is why those independent cars are successful. Well, I, you know, talking with Blyler about this, I think you guys are at a significant advantage in the rocks, just not in the survivability and the endurance of the solid axle, but in the steerability. Maneuverability. Absolutely. Those cars we talked about, you know, we'll get into the the stretch. I'm sure Josh talked about that, but I even increased my steering angle a little bit more for this King of the Hammers with the added wheelbase um, to kind of get me back to my status quo of where I was before. And uh, we were able to do that ironically because we ran the prototype spider trucks pro U joint this year, which gave us the ability to do that and maintain the strength. So it's funny. I'll circle back, but that first broken stub shaft, 
connecting me to Tom Kingston and him seeing the, I don't know if he saw the value in me, but he was just like kind of blown away that I, I broke that because it had never been done. It had not been seen. He had never seen it with his part. And like you said about Tom, I mean, he is as thorough as it comes. He knows his parts inside and out. They're engineered to near perfection and why I still run his components today. But yeah, it was that first partnership with Spider Tracks that showed me like, okay, this is something that can actually be a real thing, you know, getting support to go racing. How did the Pro chassis come to be something of a production chassis. There's a handful of them out there. You've got the the Gilberts running them. You guys run them. The Blylers run them. You've got a couple out, more than a couple. You've got quite a few of them out there. How did that, you go from the Twisted Customs car to building your own chassis in-house there at Miller Motorsports to then finally, I know you shopped around your chassis to a couple different builders to see if they could build it for you under your name. And then you ended up with Josh at Big B. Right. So that all stemmed from racing that twisted car and winning King of the, from 2010 to winning King of the Hammers in 2012 with that. I mean, we, we raced that car aggressively. I, I had three years of just racing was my entire life. I mean, it, it didn't really change, but when, when we were racing that car, we raced it hard and we saw the caveats of it. I mean, it was a refined pro mod car with uh, the bigger motor and bigger shocks but it was essentially the a, a rock crawling platform just to be blunt it wasn't really a race car and so we made a lot of changes over the years to adapt to the changes in ultra four racing and where where we were headed so i took a lot of cues so the twisted car had its had its downfalls and you know we learned a lot working on that car like I retrofitted bypasses onto it. We um, changed the rear layout completely to integrate a toolbox and a lower mounted spare tire, you know, went to an LS3 in that thing, a, a whole bunch of different stuff. I mean, that car was framed off three, four years in a row with major changes, you know, cut the subframe off, the tail off it, the nose off it, you name it, right? So essentially I had like this little twisted cab <laughs> and literally it was twisted at that point. Like the thing was not safe after I crashed it in Antelope Valley in, at the end of uh, 2012 to race in 2013. It was just not safe. Yeah, I remember you guys were doing something with a subframe, like driving 7075 aluminum yes. inside of the DOM. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, you're correct. And that came out of um, trying to build the subframe of that twisted car to, to not cave in when I would hit rocks. I mean, we all were in uncharted territory in Ultra 4 with the speed that we were going and the terrain we were trying to traverse. And uh, yeah, repairing that car. I mean, I literally, the one year we cut it apart, the two front leading subframe tubes were so far caved in, it, they were concaved. It literally, the, the, the OD of the tube had concaved to the other side and indented in the other side. The tube was almost flat. And that gave us the idea to sleeve it, right? We cut it out and sleeved it with, with solid aluminum behind it. And uh, that issue went away. So we took everything that we had learned over the three years of racing the Twisted Car and winning King of the Hammers with it, which was a lot, a lot of data. And cues from, you know, we we're all heavily invested in racing and from desert to short course, uh, you name it. If it's a form of off-road racing, we follow it just because we're in Maryland doesn't mean we don't. And we took all the cues that, you know, we saw over the years from trophy trucks and short course, uh, vehicles and, and ultra four cars and tried to meld them into the, what the do all best unlimited four wheel drive built to win King of the hammers. And that's how the pro chassis came to be as far as 
its design, its layout, its structure. I wanted it to look like similar to a twisted car, um, so much so that I even called Jason up before we built that thing and said, hey, I'm going to build my own car because I have the time and, and knowledge and ability now, and I want to use a lot of the design cues. Heck, I want to put the same front clip back on it. Are you cool with that? And he's like, yeah, you don't even have to ask me that. I'm like, well, I, you know, that's who I am. I'm not going to go building a car that looks like yours and say, here it is, um, because it is drastically different. And uh, it's it's funny because Jason gave me kind of the ultimate compliment uh, a couple years ago. He said, man, I hope I'm in a position one day to be able to own one of your cars. And I laughed at I laughed at Jason and I said, dude, I said, I feel the exact same way. I hope I'm in a position one day where I can call you up and say, Jason, I want another Twisted Customs rock crawler and I want to go pick it up. You know, I hope I can put myself in that position because those things are awesome. Absolutely. Both ways. I can see how that's a two way street that anyone would love to be on. One of the things that you did with your car that I thought aesthetically, it just made me smile was right after I'd rolled my car out and I stole the the line from it. It was uh, from Josh Daniels at Danzio Performance, his his class one car, Sheila, how the the brow, you know, the above the windshield, the roof rolled forward and had a nice, beautiful curve to it. It was kind of one of the earlier desert cars that had gone that route and having that conversation with Easy Rick Mooneyham about hey, this is kind of what the, I want the brow of that car to look like because the brow that it had on it when Dave Schneider, DSI, had sold me the chassis was different. It was a Trent Fab brow, yes. you know, that uh, downward yep. downward V. And I yes. it didn't have that desert vibe that I really wanted to go for. And so, you know, Rick cut my roof off and that was what went on. And then after the first couple races, you went to the rolled roof as well. And I just smiled. I was like, it looks so much better. It does. And so the rolled roof is, it was a thing when we did it because I like the flat roof look as opposed to like, you know, uh, Lance's Chupacabra and, uh, Travis Carpenter had that, I think it was a trout car that had the, the roof was almost like it got rolled like a ball. I mean, it was just, it got to the point where it was like too much roll on these roofs. There was an era there where a lot of people, it was like they got the Harbor Freight tube roller and they just went batshit crazy. Right. And I like the look of the flat roof, but I love the idea from an engineering standpoint of the third dimension that a rolled roof gave you in chassis design. So I said, all right, let's integrate it and make it so subtle that you have to look at it twice and say, is that actually rolled? So we, we literally rolled it like it's a half an inch of roll like of, of degree yeah. off so it's there and it's there for functionality but it gives it that little aesthetic where uh y- you know it's rolled and it's pretty cool and i'll touch on that later when we talk about the business and the direction of of the chassis sales because we kind of changed that up for one of our new products oh cool excellent so yeah so you ended up uh yeah just trial and error with uh the twisted customs car then make it then building your own car and then that ultimately ended up becoming the pro chassis that you're offering and selling today. How many of those are racing in ultra four today? Uh, it's funny cause we started serializing them and, and Casey Gil- Gilbert will tell you he has the first one. He doesn't, he has like the first pre prototype prototype. I call it negative Oh, Oh one. Mine was zero, 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 right? The hand built one. And then Blyler's his original is the first real production car. That's 001. And that was the car that, uh, that he started racing ultra four with. Anyway, he has two now. I'm sure you guys know that at this point, but there's probably 10 actively racing right now with uh, a couple more in the works and, uh, you know, kind of devising a plan to make them more attainable at this point to get more out there. And did your phone start ringing off the hook after 2020 where, you put one in third and uh, Blyla put one in first. 
Yes, it was. Uh, I think it again. It solidified the fact that you you don't have to have an IFS car. Um, even guys with IFS cars calling me to say, well, maybe I want to build one just for King of the Hammers, or you know, to use as a pre runner and keep my IFS car around for some of the other races. And I'm like, if you have the ability to do that, that is a, a fantastic way to approach it because uh, there are races like. I would not race an IFS car on the East Coast. You will get smoked by a narrow straight axle car at some of these venues. So they all have their place. Trees. Yeah, just mm-hmm. just the trees. Well, I think the first time I ever re- at least remember racing against you was in Kentucky. And I feel like it was 2015. Maybe it was 2014. But uh, it was that Sturgis event. I show up with this god-awful large, well, at least width, <laughs> width and length, you know, desert car. It's a desert car. It really yes. was. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, man, I bent my rear axle housing coming out of the woods. Like I, I think I was in the air, probably 10 feet in the air and hooked a tree with it. And, uh, I'm surprised that tree didn't, you know, come down, but yeah, bent bent my housing from there, but we ended up tangling. I, uh, I don't, I was in front of you on course and we went into this, this concrete pile. It was a pile of fucking concrete. Yeah. Off the shore course. It was a right. Excuse yep. my language about because I'm custom because there was chunks of rebar sticking out of this thing. And yeah. I, I go through it and I literally ripped a tire, like damn near ripped the tire off and I do one lap and it's now it's ripped. My brake caliper is now I don't have front brakes at this point. Come in. I think it was the Shirley Shirley's and somebody else jumped up and helped cut the tire and wheel off my car to put another one on. I think I finished 11th, but you, you flatted a tire directly behind me, but you kept going. And then post race, you were yelling at me and I was like, what the hell did I do to him? Yep. I remember that very well. That was funny. Yeah. That was a hard race. That was nasty. That again, I don't know the year or anything, but I remember being right up there in front and coming to pass there. And it was, I don't know if we were on physical first or whatnot, but we were up there and lost that tire. And that was like, you know, that was the, the race for me. We still, I think we still finished. I don't know how it went, but that was the win for me. And I was like, damn, (laughs) it was the, the heat where you and Lauren tangled front bumpers like, and you rotated around and we were stuck front to back. Yeah. Half the field went by you guys in dust and never knew it. Like never knew right. that we went by you because the dust was, yeah, that was so a thick. Crazy race. Crazy race. I love sure. it. I love I love <laughs> old race stories. They're so good. <laughs> but yeah, so you've got you've got the pro chassis going now. And I think you guys did uh, you and Josh again proving you do not need an IFS car to go winking the hammers that you've really solidified it. And when we go back and look at the stats of what you've done with your chassis in just the last six starts at KOH that you haven't finished out the top four. I think, man, that that sends a huge signal that I've. No, no, don't get me wrong. I do love IFS in the fact that the older you get, the better. I mean, it's you're not beat up the next day. Like you're not even. You know, it's it's fully feels like cheating. You know, going from a, a solid axle car to going to an IFS car, your your orbitals, you know, your orbital sockets aren't bouncing. You know, I mean, you're able to keep better vision, a little bit better control of the car. But at the same time, you're you're giving up, you know, cushion comfort for endurance. And the solid axle is certainly proven to be an endurance winner. Yeah. And that that falls into I agree with that, too. And it falls into um, the fact that the trend has leaned IFS. It's kind of like the data is skewed because the top drivers are picking that anyways. It's like this the COVID numbers right now of the number of cases. It's like, well, we don't have all the data. Well, we don't have all the data because these guys have already crossed over into IFS cars back in the day. Solid axle cars were 
rock crawlers. They were donkeys. Like they were never built as all out race cars. Like this pro chassis platform was, and that's, that's one of the things in 13 when we built it that winter, we, uh, I crashed it there in Antelope Valley. Like I said, we came back to the shop. I had, uh, you know, it was a team effort. I mean, I, I, I did not do that car alone by any means. I had, uh, Dom Balducci and uh, John Balducci, two of my really good friends who'd been racing with me since, uh, you know, the beginning there, since like uh, 2010, 2011. And uh, we built that car together in that pole barn that I stole my Miller Motorsports out of in that that winter. And we had a plan going into it, but I mean, it was just a list of attributes that we were going to accomplish on this car. So we took that whole, really, we built that car in three months because it started after uh, Halloween, November, December, January. I remember finishing that thing up and uh, pushing it into the trailer to go to King of the Hammers because it wouldn't run. You know, we were dealing with with uh, tuning issues. But, yep, we built that car. Um, it was a long winter. We worked literally 16-hour days around the clock, three of us, and then all the other guys, when they get out of work, come help in the evenings or on the weekends to get that thing done. It was uh, quite a feat because it was completely from scratch, uh, out of our heads and three of us collaborating to do it. So you know how that goes. It's like one guy thinks this is the way to do something. Another guy thinks this is a better way. And, you know, it was really, it kind of proved to me, you know, it, it takes, uh, takes a good team and people being able to work together. And we, we really, uh, kind of put any differences aside and, and forge down that path of building the best car that we possibly could. And I'm really proud because when we took it from that first prototype, to uh, production, I'll circle back on how we did that with with Blyler. Ninety percent of that car is really unchanged as far as the original ideas. Now we refined things. I mean, we made it so you could you know put an impact on every link bolt and little things like that, right? Little serviceability things because that's one of the hardest things about building an ultra four car. Trying to cram ten pounds of crap in a five five pound bag, it makes it hard to work on. And that's exactly what Josh said. Josh said Josh is mirroring exactly what you you even said. He said at one point that he and uh, John Balducci, they argued one entire evening about moving a tube. And ultimately the tube was only, the movement was a quarter inch. It was a quarter inch, but the quarter inch changed the serviceability Mm -hmm. immensely. It's ridiculous when you really uh, cut it apart, how detail oriented we have gotten with this pro chassis from the idea in 2015 to just, I had, the thing was we built this prototype platform that I was racing and doing very well with and winning and guys started coming to us and this is kind of how Miller Motorsports came to be and wanting us to build a car. And I'm like, you don't want, you just don't want us to bill you for the hours these things take to build by hand. It's just, it's astronomical. It's crazy. It really motivated me to do a laser cut car, right? You know, with where technology was uh, this day and age with CAD and SolidWorks and uh, the tooling available. So I knew that was the, the future and the wave. So this whole thing started out of meeting with Josh. You know, I always wanted to do a laser cut car. We were trying to figure out how to do it. You mentioned we we had uh, even talked to that first car. Casey is racing. We cut the whole uh, subframe and, and, and belly and cab area here in Maryland, a partnership I have with Plasma Cam. You know, we did it on a plasma table with a tube cutter attachment because it was all drawn in CAD. And then uh, we finished it with uh, Jimmy's 4x4 with uh, Randy Rod. We were going to work together have, cause he was already doing, um, laser cut cars out there and we were just going to kind of add ours to his arsenal and, uh, let him sell it and us build it. And, uh, it just, you know, Randy has a lot going on and, uh, a lot of different platforms. And I just kind of wanted to keep our ability to do whatever we needed to in house. And that was around the time that 
Josh had came to me and said, I want to race this, this King of the Hammers. I want to build a car. I said, all right. And I just, again, was kind of like, dude, this is just such a big deal to put one of these things together. He said, well, how about we partner up on it? And I said, okay, you know, what do you, what do you mean by that? What do you want to do? He said, well, you guys have all the knowledge. He goes, you have a proven track record. You have a proven car. He goes, and I have some resources that you don't, you know? And one of the big things was uh, full in-house engineering and, and his job shop, right? They had uh, full forming and laser capabilities and everything else. He goes, so I can help with the actual engineering of it. And you guys like, essentially teach us, like show us the way and we'll work together on this, be our guides down this crazy path of, of this laser cut car. And when I say this, it was just a chassis at that point, we were just going to do a chassis. So we shook on it. We said, yep, we both pretty much have even stake in the game. You help me, I help you. And we'll build a, build a car together. Well, the chassis got done and we looked at it and we said, well, we've come this far. Let's put suspension and drivetrain mounts on it. We did that and cut that. And that's the other thing about the pro chassis. It took a year of, of this engineering and prototyping to actually come to be Josh's first car. The original production car was built in pieces. We did a chassis, we cut it, we put it together. Then we cut all the suspension brackets, built fixtures and put them on that chassis. It wasn't completely designed in SolidWorks, And then we hit print and, and do everything. Cause that just doesn't work. There's a lot of things that will interfere with one another. We changed a lot of stuff along the way by design, prototype, and back and forth. And uh, it took a year. It was actually 2015, and I almost took that year off from racing. If you look back, I only raced King of the Hammers and Reno. And I did that because we were developing this uh, this whole platform. So the snowball started off the mountain. It was just going to be a chassis. And the way Josh and I both are, we said, well, we did it this much. We did it this far. Let's Why stop here? Keep and going. Before you knew it. Before you knew it, we had this production platform, and here we are. I think it's a good spot. I think you guys are in a really good spot, and I really had no idea until just before talking to Blyler, I actually got it from Casey Gilbert, was that you guys had the, the production chassis wasn't made in-house by you guys there at Miller Motorsports. I didn't know that Big B was involved, and that and that's the Blyler's involvement on it. I really find it to be one of the coolest partnerships going on in Ultra 4 today. Yeah. So we have, that was the other thing. Josh and I wanted the ability to, you know, we partnered together, but we, we all do our own work. We actually built our own custom chassis table. He's got one. I've got one. We built uh, axle tables, the whole nine yards. And uh, so we both in Pennsylvania and Maryland have the construction ability to put pro chassis together. The laser um, tube and forming is done uh, on the West Coast, and we do all of the in-house uh, laser cutting for flat plate and forming uh, at Big B. So yeah, at Miller Motorsports, we do assembly like like they do as well. So it's a collaborative effort between us both. Totally sick. Totally sick. Let's move forward. Uh, I want to talk about one little partnership because it's a question that I've had just in the back of my head. And this is the the form by which I can ask a good question that I wouldn't normally find the answer to. And then we can, then I want to delve into KOH 2020, but last year, KOH 2019, you teamed up with Robbie Gordon on the Jeep gladiator. How did that whole race come to be? How did that happen? I, I find it completely amazing. You guys were able to finish with that truck, but wow. Uh, what's the story behind that? 
it's funny. It, it's one of those crazy stories too. Robbie's always been an acquaintance of mine. He's a, uh, you know, a Charlotte based guy. And uh, I have ties to Charlotte too. I have two of my older brothers are down there. My dad has a place down there on, on Lake Norman. So I spend a lot of time down in that, that area. And it's funny, you know, pack moved down there the whole nine yards. But uh, I knew Robbie just through his racing and, and being a, really a fan of, of what he had going on. And Dave, Cole called me uh, just one day randomly. It was one of those Dave Cole calls. I'm actually sitting in the hospital at Western Maryland Health System with Leah and, uh, you know, waiting for, you know, she's getting induced to have have Nixon, right? This is the beginning of January. So we're heavy in the middle of KOH prep and Dave calls and he actually called me about something not even relevant to this, uh, this CMC race, but he goes, oh, hey, and, and by the way, Jeep's on board. They're going to race a, a 4,600 Gladiator and, uh, I can't think of anybody better to drive that thing in the rocks. Robbie, Robbie Gordon's going to race it, but uh, he doesn't, he's not going to run the rocks. Would you do it? And I kind of laughed and I said, um, yeah, look, what's the catch though? <laughs> you know, uh, it can't be that easy, right. To show up and, and just drive it. And uh, it, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't. We, we got out there and everything was behind schedule. The thing had to be built in literally two weeks. Uh, it was late being delivered to savvy. Savvy did the the build of it came down to the wire. Actually, I didn't know I was even qualifying the Jeep. It was getting finished up uh, that afternoon before we had to qualify it. I didn't have lockers. I went over to Gerald's compound and said, you know, are you, you guys are still working on this thing? Like I, ha- I haven't even driven it yet. And Dave just told me that I'm the guy qualifying it. I thought Robbie was driving it. And I said, like, we got to go. And Gerald's like, yep, take it. And I said, I have to put a wrench on every bolt under this chassis before I get in this thing. Like I can't. I cannot go drive as fast as I can around a qualifying loop without knowing that we put our hands on this thing. So I brought it back, to, brought it back to my pit. We spent 30 minutes, like eight of me and my guys under it, checking every nut and bolt with Loctite torque wrenches, swapped nittos on it and went out and qualified, put that thing on the pole with no lockers. I was worried I wouldn't even make it up short bus, let alone get that thing around the track. But what a crazy, crazy thing. And full commitment. Yeah, it was. And if that wasn't bad enough, that being the first time I drove it, Dave comes up to the window as I'm sitting like, you know, staged, ready to go, two guys. And he goes, you'll never who, guess who I got off the phone with. And I said, I don't know, Dave, who? He's like, the president of Jeep. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, hopefully he's like excited about this. He goes, he told me, he goes, uh, they want to pull the plug on this whole thing. I'm like, okay, like, we don't have to do this. You tell me, like, I'm just driving the thing. I don't know what to do. He goes, no, 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 that's not what's happening said, okay. He goes, this race is ran out of that tent, not that tent. And I said, okay. He goes, so he goes, I told him this thing is running. And that was that he goes, so don't screw this up. <laughs> no pressure right at the line. And, I, and he, and he walks away and I'm sitting there. I look over at Rob. I'm like, is he serious right now? Did he really just come up to me like two minutes before I'm leaving and tell me that the, the pressure of Chrysler and Fiat watching this vehicle, this is their first dive back into racing since God only knows how long the weight of that is on my shoulders. If I screw this up, they're going to pull the plug on the whole program. And I haven't even driven this car. I said, Rob, I just said, forget that that even happened. I said, I don't even care. I can't do anything about that. And that's one thing my dad always taught me. He said, if you can't do anything about something, don't worry about it, right? It's like a rocking chair. Don't do anything. Don't worry about it. So I said, let's just go put down a good time. And we had a good run. And the rest is kind of history in that thing. <laughs> oh, no, they got so. miles and miles and miles of media out of that and coverage and content out of that finish. That was uh, that was something else. Oh, my God. It was stressful. And uh, to race with Rob, 
Bobby, uh, that was that was pretty cool. I, I really got to give him credit. I did in person after the race, but I have a lot of respect for his program, and the way he did it, because he has a bad reputation about being kind of a, a checkers or wreckers kind of guy, especially in in the desert world with uh, his trophy trucks. And I, I told Robbie the night before the race, I said, listen, this is not a trophy truck. I like, I know you understand that, but this thing is fragile. Like I need you to get me a car that's a hundred percent because if it is broken or hurt, I will not be able to get it through the rocks. Like it's really important that you're smart in the desert. And he said, I know, I know. And the same thing that morning I said, Robbie, just take it easy on the thing. And I have to give him credit because he did a phenomenal job. That Jeep came back around in the same shape it left the line. And uh, I was really, really impressed. So it was just a good team effort. Everybody knows the story about me uh, in the rocks that day. It didn't have lockers that were functioning. Just to finish that race in that Jeep, which was the goal, was a feat. I had two co-drivers to do it. And uh, I needed every last bit of that. And man, I have never winched more in my life. It was hard bringing a gladiator <laughs> on 35s through the hammers trails with no lock and disc, but we did it. It was awesome. Yeah, it, was a, it was a feat and uh, it got a lot of people on their feet. Uh, when you guys did come back in, in the dark, man, that was, it was impressive. Well, we, uh, we really enjoyed it. I, I love 4,600. I've, I've raced it before and hope to do it again. We, we actually won that race in, in 2014 in a, in a grand Cherokee. A lot of people don't know about that, but, uh, I, I really enjoy that class because of my rock crawling roots, I think it's a good feeder for Ultra 4. So I hope that stays around. I think it will, right? Oh, yeah. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full get. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest edition, Recovery Rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show. Jumping forward, uh, it's not really forward, we're just up to current affairs. KOH 2020, mm-hmm. just recently in the books. You said it before, you can look on the internet and you can see it's all over Facebook. You uh, you end up you know finishing third. Uh, there was a lot of chaos post-race around uh, what the finishes look like with some timing and stuff. But Mm -hmm. that aside, how was your race? I talked to you midweek that week, and everything seemed to be going really, really, really well. And obviously, it it ended up ending really well. But how was – I know there's a lot to unpack here, but how was your your prep? How was your team? How pre-running go? I think the only issue I saw you have midweek was you had a water pump that was weeping a little bit. But other than that, it's funny that that water pump weep was, was uh, like a problem that had been 
going well the water pump wasn't the the weeping wasn't the issue the car that car ever since i built it had been running hot and i could never figure it out we changed literally almost everything in the system um never had issues with the gm factory water pumps which we were running and that was like the last thing that had never been changed in the two years i've been racing that car i kind of said we didn't have issues i that whole week felt like one issue after another and each day i felt like i was getting pushed back further and further and further from shock tuning to qualifying the whole nine yards it was it was pretty stressful um just because i felt like uh I wanted to be further along than I was. And we had the coolant out of that car probably four times chasing this problem. We ended up putting a new water pump on it and uh, the car ran 25 degrees cooler, like amazing change and difference. And uh, still, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it was the difference in the machining of that pump, whether the impeller didn't engage as far and or it was creating cavitation, whatever was wrong with that water pump. There was from the de- first day I put it on, it was wrong. But we, we got the car together and uh, got it all bled. And like I said, our pre-run was a disaster this year because my razor kept breaking. <laughs> it's stupid. It's an old razor. It's got like 5,000 miles on it, but it's part of the program. It's part of the prep. We go through it every year and we just had, we had some bad wheel bearings off the shelf. And it, literally every time I go out the pre-run, we, we lost a wheel the first time I had to come back. Second time I made it all the, halfway around to like the furthest part out there. And the, uh, the bearings started going and I'm like, dude, I can't, I just can't buy a break. So, uh, again, that, kind of played into the stress for me during the week is like, I just didn't have all my ducks in a row. So I said, well, this car isn't, you know, tested yet. Let's go run that. And that's one thing I always like to do, even though I like to pre-run and have a pre-runner vehicle to keep miles off the race car. I'm a huge proponent of testing the race car. So I always try to do at least one rock lap in the vehicle because I don't care what you do coming right out of the shop. You need to put a couple miles on those things to make sure they're right. I like to put 50 to hundred on them, uh, just easy miles. And uh, we did that. We ran all the rocks and saw the new stuff. And, and that was really good. And that kind of put me at a place in my head where I was like at peace. I knew the car was was ready to go. And we qualified very, very well in it. I think we were like, you know, seventh off the line, 13th position, which was right where I wanted to be within a few seconds of, of the pole at King of the Hammers, which is all I ever strive for. You know, you don't I don't like to be right up front at King of the Hammers. This race was a good good reason why. I mean, it's it's anybody's game. Uh, it's nice to have a little corrected time on your side. So during the race, there was so many lead changes, so many. I mean, there was like 12, 15. I don't even know what the total lead changes were, but it seemed like as soon as they would announce somebody was the new leader, give them five minutes and you would have another new leader because they would break or get past or break or get past. It, but it was mostly breaking. Your name wasn't really in that kind of that, uh, that, that cloud until the, towards the very end. At what point did you kind of know where you were at on the road and that you had worked your way into having a good day? So I knew the whole time that we were racing, uh, we were sticking right to our plan. That's a, that's a super long, super difficult endurance race, right? It's, it's seven, eight hours, no matter how you slice it. And you certainly don't want it on the first lap. And, you know, we always kind of, I take that approach. I mean, we're, uh, we're definitely not slow in the desert, but I'm, I am conservative. You know, I want to get that car around just like Robbie did in that 4,600 class for us. You have to have equipment to race on lap three. And if you have to fix problems and deal with issues and have a car that's hurt and not hundred percent, and you don't have anything left to race on lap three, you're kind of, you're kind of kidding yourself if you think you're going to win. And, uh, it's just a matter of time. This race proved it though. It's just a, a race of attrition. So that strategy, it played out pretty well. And, and, you know, hindsight being 2020, my biggest issue was losing that fan relay. I mean, we lost about an hour on the road with that mess trying to fix it. We stole a fan from, uh, uh, Jeff McKinley, my buddy there, he let us borrow one and, and we figured out retrofitting that fan on 
in the field that it was the actual relay in the switch panel um, that was the problem. The fan wasn't wasn't coming on and off. So uh, you know, we we had to sit there. There was a time at the top of Chocolate Thunder where I was like paused and people were probably wondering what the heck was wrong. It was because I was like at 240 degrees. I was trying to <laughs> mitigate this car overheating because if you boil your cooling system over at King of the Hammers, I mean, unless your bladder's full and you got a heck of a, a drinker full, like there's no water in the desert. So you're kind of, your race is over unless you're hiking and you lose valuable time. So I was trying to keep forward progress while cooling, keeping the car cool with one fan, which doesn't work with these big motors. We lost a bunch of time there. So we were able to, get my car limped into pit two. This is like, you know, on lap two, halfway through the day. Uh, we were doing pretty well, but at this point we'd, we'd lost a lot of ground because we were limping so hard. And um, all the, the front runners and leaders had passed us. And I knew that unless we got that thing fixed, that we didn't really have a shot at it because the car would not stay cool, even in the desert. And so we, we limped it into pits. We figured out the issue. And this goes back to the pro chassis platform, my team, you know, having the right hand know what the left hand's doing and everything, everything just being dialed. We figured out it was a relay. I was able to radio back, you know, and I got to give like, it's even the smallest people like rugged radios. We've spent a ton of time just tuning radios. I mean, that's, that seriously seems like a small thing, but it is so important on race day and uh, got a production switch panel that Josh had a spare of out of the trailer brought it out to the remote pit. Uh, my guys brought it out and we swapped that panel, you know, in five minutes, it's two big cannon plugs, four quarter twenties and a, and a positive lead into it. And, and that switched and every pro chassis is built like that. So any switch panel will interchange and that's the advantage of that platform. Otherwise we would have had to hot wire a fan up, you know, half fast or whatever. But anyways, it goes to, to prove that forethought ahead of the time really put me on on the podium because if it wasn't for that there's no way i would have been able to battle back so we got that fixed and uh, i was able to drive and and have a race car that was 100 percent. well i think this is another you know feather in the cap of the pro chassis and the feather in the cap of what you guys have going with what we've seen certainly in nascar but we're you know now seeing it in ultra four is the multi-car teams blyler has his own team he has his own guys he has his own stuff but the the interchangeability it's kind of like when you get into the trophy trucks that they are a lot of one-offs but still a lot of the arms from you know the geyser trucks you can swap arms you can swap certain parts that's a nice kind of cushion to have that maybe you not that you purposely set out intentionally to share parts but if you needed one you kind of know who might have one to go to no we did i mean i I don't know uh geyser they built premier trucks but i doubt that you could take a a fender off the one trophy truck and bolt it directly onto the other i'd be surprised if that would work our cars you can take a body panel off and interchange them on any of those production versions and uh, when we set out to build these cars we had full intention of that the whole time from drive lines to axle shafts, like our rear drive shaft. We wanted to interchange with our front. So we had to carry one spare. It's, it's all those little things like that, that really play into the consistency I've had because you have to have a good machine and you have to be mechanically sound and you have to know it inside and out um, to do well at King of the Hammers. It's such a culmination of so many things coming together. And if you don't have your car right, like that's the, the first piece of the puzzle. When did you know that Josh Blyler was first on the road? I heard that Josh was ahead probably when I was starting my lap three and heard how far ahead he was and knew that I was like, all right, I hope he can, I hope he can get it together because I'll tell you right now, my heart sunk. He started ahead of me by a very small margin. He was like, a couple tenths of a second ahead of me in qualifying. And we joked because I said, you know, if I follow you in, I'm going to beat you. 
right? We always kind of, like you said, we have separate teams and we have our own stuff, but we're, we're both, you know, really good teammates, but we're super uh, rivals on the track. So I always give him heck about that. And I said, I, I'm glad I finished, you know, two tenths behind you so I could get that 30 seconds of corrected time. And when I passed him in the desert out at race mile 40 or whatever, for the first time with him pulled over, I know that feeling. I, my heart hurt. My heart sank for him because I knew he had a shot at it this year. And when I passed him, I said, man, if somebody has a good day. That might be the difference for Josh. And I know what was wrong, right? I mean, he had a flat. That's all it was. But um, when I heard he was ahead again, it was that kind of like, I don't know, dad in me. Like I'm so, I was so proud that he had, he was w- leading the race at the very least uh, and hopefully could pull, pull it together. And then it all falls together with him <laughs> off back door doing his doing his antics and he almost threw it away and again that plays in i asked josh at the end of it i said what what happened right i watched that and it just looked like you did nothing like i don't that's not you what happened he goes erica he goes i don't know i go you were tired weren't you he goes yeah i was i was exhausted and i just i just kind of nodded my head and i thought in the back of my head i'm, I'm a big proponent of uh you know being physically fit for this race, let alone having your car together and your team and everything else. If you as a driver can't stay mentally focused throughout that entire race, you have to make every decision right to finish and finish up front. And uh, that could have been Josh's race. And uh, thankfully they were able to recover and he built enough of a lead, but I've been there. I've been cresting short bus and lost a, a steering pump and saw the finish line, right? I could see it in 2012. And I'm like, here's my race. And miraculously I was able to get the car across. So that's like what I love about KOH, just the aura of it. Like everybody thinks he has it in the bag and that happens. And Marcos, Marcos Gomez coming in was the exact same way. Like everyone's like, Oh, corrected time. He has him. He has, he has Josh by a lot. And then he takes that, the blinder eyes and semi rips off the right side of his car. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's just anybody's race until it's over. You never say never, ever. That's why we pushed so hard once we got that car fixed. And then Josh telling the story about being upside down and actually end up, you know, torching his motor, getting in to get the finishes. Oh, is that what 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 an awesome story? I mean, um, everyone is now by at this point, everyone will have heard that story. But uh, man, when he told that to me, I was like, whoa, amazing! Yeah, yeah. and he didn't. It, it didn't have much further to go. I I saw that motor firsthand, actually dropping the uh the willies motor off to get the uh, machine work done I'm, I'm using the same shop in pennsylvania mapco that josh uses for his motors uh you know his engine guy nate's really good and uh we became pretty good friends out there this that last week at king of the hammers and it's it's really cool to be able to use you know local businesses like that to do this some of this work yeah support local mm-hmm. no so yeah so you finish you uh you came across the, the finish line uh second and then yeah. you have the the weight the weight and then dave tells you you're second with confidence, with confidence that I have never seen in Dave Cole's face. Cause I even questioned him. I said, really? We knew we had to make up like, you know, 20, 30 minutes on, on Marcos. And I, I did everything in my, I did my damnedest to do it, but I knew that Marcos was right there. And, uh, you know, I personally didn't know what to think really at that point. And I said, are you sure? Are you sure? Twice. Yeah. Yep. We've verified all the VCPs, all the checkpoints check out, like you're good to go. And, uh, I came over, you know, and told all my guys and they were all like, really, you know, cause we were all running our, our own watches and stuff like that. And, uh, they're like, awesome. Like congrats. And that was, that was that. And, uh, and we celebrated. And like I said, I was, I really could have cared less at that point because Josh won. 
And that's all that matters. Uh, second, third, whatever, you know, it's King of the Hammers. If you don't win King of the Hammers, nobody cares. And then we find out seven days later that there was a, there was a timing issue on the starts. How, I mean, one, I feel for Hammer King having to go out and address something, you know, address a mistake versus, you know, own it and still having to own that mistake for life. But, and there's got to be a solution, right? There's got to be a solution. We've seen this happen numerous times. And I, I'd love to hear your take on what, what you think maybe that solution could be. I, ha- I have an idea, but I'm not a racer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, well, you were, and you have a great insight to uh, everything Ultra 4. And I mean, like this, this podcast, what you're doing, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a big part of the sport now because it, it helps drive innovation. It helps, I mean, look what we're talking about right now. It's going to drive the direction of the future of the sport. And I think that's really important, but the timing thing is nothing new, right? And it's ultra fours biggest Achilles heel. Um, if, if I may be so blunt. And I, I think that that's completely unacceptable, uh, being the premier off-road endurance racing body in, in the world. The fact that ultra four doesn't even own their own timing system is, I mean, that's almost unbelievable to me at this point with the millions of dollars that are invested in that body to race and the, that the racers have in their programs, uh, it just seems crazy. And for timing to be the one thing we keep coming back to having problems with as a racer, it just, it kills me. And I'm right there with you. I, I believe we've finally come to a point with as much as on the line, you know, just, just in the, the 4,400 race with a hundred thousand dollar purse on the line and first being what it is and second being what it is and, you know, paying out to 10, but, you know, using the same timing system they used on Thursday for the trophy truck race when there's a hundred thousand, sorry, we'll say this on Thursday when it's the T1 race, the trophy <laughs> truck race, Yeah, <laughs> when there's a hundred thousand on the line for first place and having the certainty that the timing is correct. And then even further, let's take it the next step upstream being qualifying. If how are we that confident in the accuracy of the timing? And there's a several ways, you know, Hammer King has some redundancy. They run the like RFID trackers that trip the start finish line. There's a, there's a scanner at the start finish line, but then they also run the yellow bricks kind of as a redundancy that they use for the short coursing, the virtual checkpoints. But I think we've finally gotten to the point and, and you and I had talked about it in the past and, it, and I love about you know, be, having good sounding boards out there, as I've said many, many times and to bounce ideas off of, but one of the things that we had talked about was a year ago when hammer king eliminated the live show it left the racer to kind of have to promote for himself he needed to cover something that previously the promoter had covered you know how to get the word out about what his race was and and people have listened to this show have heard me talk about levi shirley and levi going out and doing a live feed from his car very cool he took matters into his own hands i think we're at this point on timing that it's time for the racers to really take that into their own hands and own their own trackers. They can own two of them. They're not that expensive. And Hammer King would have their timing system, but the racers would be responsible for the mounting of their tracker, the charging of their tracker, and then Hammer King having a, let's call it a test loop. And you you have to run your car across that test loop within 24 to 36 hours before the green flag so and verify that yes both of my trackers work yes the tracker 
1682B is associated to Eric Miller and 1682C is Eric Miller's backup tracker. So when they see that come across their system, it pops up number 21, Eric Miller. And at that point, it's on you to ensure that you're not worrying about walk, pulling up to the qualifying line and having a guy run up to the back of your car while you're in there, helmet on, you know, pumpers blowing, you're thinking about your run and the guy, you see a guy run up to your bumper and zip tie on a tracker. And you're like, what did that guy just attach to my car? Oh, that's your tracker. Are you kidding me? How do we know that that thing works? How do we know that's charged? How do we know that there was a signal? The first chance it's going to get to be tested that you're going to see it come across a computer screen is when I actually trip the start finish, the start finish line to get it to go. And we don't even know. Like, does that make sense? And that's what happened to me at King of the Hammers. Like they strapped a, all of us, a tracker on our car as we're staged in line for power hour. I'm like, this is not okay. Like you can't expect us to go throw down the fastest lap that we possibly can beat our equipment, you know, for that, that two, three minutes as hard as we possibly can. And then if it doesn't, if it doesn't clock, sorry, you got to do it again. Like we've come too far. This is, it's too, too far down the line for this amateur hour stuff to continue to go on. And I I like your point about redundancy. This is, this is ultra four. And a a lot of things in the evolution of the sport has necessitated redundancy, right. For reliability. So I, I don't personally think the racers should be solely responsible for the timing. I think that should 100% be ultra four and they should have done it back up. But I agree that we as racers should have another means to verify if there's four GPS sources on our car from our, you know, lead nav or whatever program you're running to your yellow brick, to your uh, transponder with ultra four and hell like me, I'm going to start wearing a, uh, I have a Garmin GPS watch and start using that to help overlay telemetry into our video edits that will, I mean, heck, it'll even input my heart, my heart rate at a given time. But that will allow us as racers to say, well, no, we didn't short course. Here's two verifiable GPS tracks that say that we didn't and the timestamp for it. And there's nothing wrong with yellow brick. Yellow brick starts and finishes at the same point. And as long as it clicks that and you know the, uh, like you mentioned earlier, Wyatt, the delta, it is accurate. So um, I just think there's no excuse at this point. And it's uh, something they need to figure out. Yeah, we need to get there. I've I- just sad to see that we've had kind of two years in a row with kind of issues around timing at, you know, the biggest race of the year with everything that's on the line. And I get it. Believe me, I get it with, with ultra four and hammer King. I get it's there's growing pains and making sure. And well, I guess the responsibility and I guess the weight on your shoulders, the burden of ensuring accuracy. And sometimes you just can't be as accurate as you'd like to be, but it feels like there's steps that we could have taken or could have been taken uh, to to ensure this. And so let's look let's look at twenty one and make sure we don't recreate this in twenty one. We've got you know we've got a bunch of time on our hands to sit around and research it and figure it out. I mean, with, with everybody stuck at home with COVID, so I don't. Well, know. I I think first things first, the the body needs to invest in their own timing system. I mean, that's just uh, that should have happened ten years ago. Yeah, what we have uh, it was the NorCal guy, John Goodby. Oh, John Goodby, that's right. And mm-hmm. it was right at the end of my tongue. It was John Goodby's system. And it's a good system. It just, the fact that there wasn't enough trackers to use when you're using the same trackers from the UTV race on Monday, then you're using it for the qualify, uh, right. all the qualifying. And then they go on to the EMC cars. Then they go on to, granted, there was only a handful of, you know, T1s this year. And then they go back on to the Ultra 4s at the end of the week. I mean, that's, right. that ended up being why Marcos Gomez's 
time end up being a correction because right. the tracker that was on his car that they believed was the tracker on his car was actually not the tracker on his car. It was actually registered someone else. And there was a, and that other car left five minutes earlier. And so that's why there was a five minute time correction for Marcos. And that was the difference, you know, sitting at the finish line, we all thought you had uh, you needed to sit there for seven or eight minutes and it just didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work out. That's why I think there was a, the uproar from the cheap seats, people going, Oh no, 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 no. The timing, the timing's way off. We could tell it was off anyway. Uh, it's, fr it's frustrating. I know how frustrating you are because at the end of the day, that's a $15,000 shift in what goes into your family and being able to put food on the table. That's, that's a $15,000 shift and your sm small shop, small race shop. That sucks. It hurts. And that's, and that's what I told Dave when he called me like six days after the fact and said, we got to talk about this and you're not going to like it. And I said, you really call me six days after the race. Cause this was really the first that that was the first that I had really heard about it. I mean, we all had timers going, but I mean, his data was his data. They had checked it five times. It was perfect. He told me with utter confidence that I was second place. Like I believe that from the race promoter and I was unwavered in that he was as confident as he's ever been. And so uh, a week later to come back and then uh, redact that it, it really is painful. And like I said, the, the money's what hurts me as a small shop, the, the biggest, I mean, second, third, whatever, no one cares. It's King of the Hammers. I didn't win. Marcos didn't win. It's Josh's year, you know, and that's what everybody will remember Josh winning. But what if it was a difference between first and second? I mean, the fact that it was a podium swap is bad enough. And whether I the shoe was on the opposite foot for me, I would feel no different. The timing has to be fair. It has to be accurate. And at some point, whether there's a mistake or not, I mean, the, the results have to be the official results at a certain given point in time, whether it's right or wrong, because you can't just go back a week later and rewrite the Super Bowl. It just doesn't work that way. So they need to figure that out on their end. Well, and then there's the concern for, as we are now getting less races this season because of the COVID virus outbreak, that is going to make the points race that much tighter and that much more interesting and that much more important to have them, right? And if there was an issue with the points, at KOH did the finish times at KOH that's the biggest race of the year well it might not have felt that insane you know down the finish you know it was 44 finishers you know maybe the guy that finished 39th it that point play could come into play when we get to nationals it really could and and so you're wanting accuracy for the full field I don't know I, I'm sitting back going man that's just it's a ripple effect it's a huge deal. The timing for racing is, I mean, that's, that's like the agricultural industry for our country. It is without timing. Like you have nothing, you don't have concrete results. So, um, again, they need to figure that out. And, uh, we've all been advocates for them. You know, we're all kind of in this together. I've, I've, I've actually in years past when they've had timing issues, tried to help with a solution, heck, try to even get people to come out and time a race for us at line mountain. Uh, those guys have it together up there where Josh and I actually became friends and started racing together. They run a, a small series in central PA, um, where they run timing loops through the woods and, you can look at a screen 30 minutes after the race and know your time and it's accurate. It's amazing. And they're really good at it. So it's just not that hard. We need to figure it out. I agree, man. Well, Hey, let's move, moving on to the future. What do we got going forward? I guess at the forefront of your thoughts, currently it's, you know, canceled races for this season. That's going to certainly come into play when it comes into what you're, where you're going to focus, you know, effort at. I remember seeing last year, you ran some line mountain races, you ran some, road course hill hill climb type races outside of the virus deal 
what was your kind of mindset about where you're going to focus efforts this year? Yeah. So it's, uh, again, like you said, it's, it's all up in the air. I think we're all trying to figure out, uh, the direction that the season is going to go. But, uh, like last year for me, um, I, I took a step back. Uh, we won the East coast championship in 2018, um, which I was really proud of, took a step back from that this last season, um, you know, with the help from the direction of my sponsors, because I didn't feel, uh, you know, obviously proud of that. That's a lot of competition, but I didn't feel that it really uh, paid dividends for us uh, with those those regional races. I don't think that we got the coverage and, and bang for the buck out of it that we need as a business. And uh, so I wanted to take last year's step back, focus more on the business end of it, because, you know, it takes that to make all this go around. So we have the ability to go race. And I'm looking at it from that standpoint this year with the uncertainty in the economy. I mean, we have to have jobs and dollars coming into the shop to be able to go race. So, you know, I'm, I'm at this point where it'd be cool to kind of build some content and do some cool stuff and do things that are a little outside the norm just to kind of get some different eyes on what we're doing outside of the uh, direct Ultra 4 consumer base that has their eyes on it. Like we did that uh, hill climb that was a, actually a local deal, but it was an asphalt road race hill climb. And we shot a couple cell phone videos and I actually placed like way, way better in a pretty much unprepped Ultra 4 car with spools and hydraulic steering that was nothing but lowered and put on 35s least like ninth out of 90 guys and they're running like Le Mans F1 looking cars up these hill climbs and we were a couple of seconds out of the lead but those videos of my four-wheel fully spooled ultra four car that made 750 horsepower on asphalt backing into a corner people loved it and that was really cool to see just because it's so different right even the guys at the track they're like what the heck is this and what are you doing with it so i want to kind of pursue more of that we went down to uh you know bring an ultra four car to some some hill climb stuff because it's it's closer to us it's uh here on the east coast Derek west has been running a lot of uh outlaw and pro rock stuff and we went down there to race to riches and uh you know not not a lot of people know that because i actually it's one of the first races that i ever went to and uh actively decided to withdraw from it i looked at the hill because I was kind of fed some information that wasn't entirely accurate about it being a bounty hill or not. Cause I said, if it's a bounty hill, I just, I don't have any business wrecking my ultra four car three weeks before I have to be in Reno for the national championship. I was told it was a drivable raceable course and uh, got down there and it was an absolute bounty hill. No one had ever driven up. And I just, I laughed when I was told that I said, this is such a waste of my time. I said, no one will drive up that hill. I can see the shelf on it. I said, that's going to be a good show for people, but I doubt if anyone makes it. And uh, that first round, not one single car made it. And I, it was hard for me to kind of step back and not race to drag the car down there, uh, bring everything and kind of watch was really hard. But I knew deep down that that was the right move. Uh, so we could have a car that we then in turn took to Reno, put a uh, prototype uh, rear suspension plate in place on it and uh, did some testing in Johnson Valley that entire week after Reno. And uh, that was the the suspension setup that we ran for King of the Hammers. And honestly, Wyatt, that's probably one of the reasons that Josh and I did so well was that um, that change. And if I would have wrecked my car down there in, in uh, Kentucky, that wouldn't have never happened. It wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. No. I don't have the resources. It's just what it is. So you got to make the tough call sometimes and, uh, and, and know the end directive. And that's kind of what we're doing this year. We're going to see how things play out, focus on the shop. We're doing some uh, Jeep replacement axles uh, partnered with spider tracks and our uh, for JKs and JLs that are really cool. They're uh, direct trickle down derivative from exactly what we're racing in our, our pro chassis and trying to bring something new to that, that market that uh, really has, it's kind of 
the Dana Dana deals what gets pushed in that Jeep market, and uh, they're also heavy. So try to bring some race technology to that crowd, and uh, you know that's one of my passions. I I enjoy that. I enjoy just going out of the weekends with my family. I've always been uh, just a four wheeler, and uh, to get back to doing some more uh, Jeep specific stuff is is definitely cool. What I really like, I'm gonna yeah, I guess preface this with I really like your thought process. I see eye to eye with you on a lot of your thought process in that you're very studious and prepared for every single step calculate if you will i'll even say calculated and i like watching a very calculated team pull off the stuff they pull off and man your your record speaks for yourself man eric i definitely covered a lot of what i wanted to cover with you today how do you feel about I, I think we, we did a good job just kind of covering everything. I know we went in a bunch of different directions, but it all kind of based around the, the timeline of, uh, of my racing career and looking back on everything we discussed. I mean, it's pretty cool to kind of take a trip down memory lane because I don't want to say you forget that stuff, but, um, you know, everybody's so busy in their, in their everyday life that it's easy to get distracted by, you know, what's really important and why you do what you do and why, who you are, who you are. And, uh, again, like this whole mess going on today it really is going to make people take a step back and realize what's important with their family and uh obviously you know work is important um because it's it's what it takes to to feed your family but you know tomorrow's never promised and you really have to cherish those moments you have today and i've learned that a lot being a being a new father and i'm i'm proud of where i've come from and where we're at today and uh want to continue to grow. I, I don't like, uh, being stagnant. I don't like being complacent. Uh, it's just not who I am. It's that competitive, that competitive edge I've been instilled, I think. And, uh, I'm sure it will be instilled in Nixon just because of who I am, but, uh, it, it makes life fun. Well, here's my canned ending of interview question. What advice would you give newcomers? Oh man, I've been asked that a lot and, uh, I've put a lot of thought in it and it, it really, this day and age is it's so much different. The cost of entry into any form of motorsports is so high. I think that Ultra Four is is unique in its offering and um, really uh, more easily attainable than than most others. And they've done a good job of that. Like from when I started, right? I always tell everybody I kind of rode the crest of the wave as a as a young kid uh, getting into this sport and the right things happening at the right time and taking advantage of those things to to get where I'm at today because. You you know, I, I don't come from a, uh, a large race team. I don't come from a ton of money or anything like that. So for people entering the sport today, I would tell them to, you know, start with the feeder classes, start with a 4,600 build or a, or a UTV. And I say that because it shows you whether you can swing it in 4,400 or not, because uh, they essentially, they're just doing the same thing that we are uh, j- just on a bit of a different level. So, you know, you still get the ability to build a vehicle from scratch. You have to put a team together that works well together. You have to do all the things right to be successful in those classes that you do in ultra four. And if you don't love that, you're wasting your time and money with ultra four. I don't disagree with that at all. And also, I mean, there's like you said, the barrier and the hurdle for entry to get in today is so large. It's as simple as just reaching out to your local racer. If you want to get involved, certainly there's a lot of places on Facebook to, to reach out to those guys. Reach out if somebody's local to you. Like if, if a guy from the Cumberland area were to reach out to you, Eric, and say, hey, man, I've watched you. I've seen your stuff. Can I come out and you know meet you, hang out? Is there anything I do? I push a broom. I guarantee you're going to be like, oh yeah, bring it on. Let's see what you're about. 
So that's that's amazing. And, and really how a lot of my team has come to be through that type of, uh, hey, I want to be a part of this. We were fortunate enough to bring engineering in-house last year full-time with uh, hiring Andrew Shive. And Andrew, he's a, uh, he formerly worked for uh, Dorman Products. Uh, he's, he's younger. He's 28 now and uh, studied engineering. And I knew, again, that was another position at, at the company that we needed to fill to be able to produce what we produce. And Andrew came on board just like Nate Stowers did and a lot of the other guys just through uh, mutual acquaintance and wanting to come out and help. Scott Decker actually brought both of those guys uh, in to help and they came out to KOH and helped build uh, the 4600 car or come work on the 4400 car and uh, loved the sport. It was just that Ultra 4 kind of brought us together, the King of the Hammer stuff. And uh, I think that's the best way to get involved with it, you know, is, is just to, to volunteer some help and go be a part of it and prove your worth, right? You don't even have to uh, invest in a race car or anything. Just get involved. Go make memories. Yep. Absolutely. Please do not stop doing what you're doing. You're absolutely killing it. (laughs) You continue to be in the conversation for who's going to be on the podium. The fact you haven't finished outside the top four in the last six years is absolutely bonkers to even talk about. Well done. Please keep it up. Keep going. We're going to work through timing issues. We're going to work through other hurdles. Things are going to happen. You know, in January, we would have never thought we had COVID to deal with, but now we do. Things are we're going to get continue to get thrown curveballs. I know you are a very good guy at hitting curveballs, so please stay on it, keep going. Thank you for coming on the show today, man. Thanks, Wyatt. I appreciate it, man. This was uh, this was awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. I think this is a uh, small bright spot for people during this time, especially enthusiasts. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and keep listening to the Talent Tank. All right. Well, we are out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my uh, my three partners on this. Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh. Branding Machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If If you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh, this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, Mass Motorsports Engines, Man, they have uh, they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.